Welcome to the Great Bass Tennis Podcast, episode 83. I'm Steve Smith, along with Brandon Flanagan from the FM Tennis Performance Center in Boynton Beach, Florida. We're going to introduce or interview Warren Pretorius. Why don't you say something uh, clever, Flanagan? I'm not very clever, Steve. Oh, come on, come on. I always tell kids that uh, you're all intelligent, but uh, are you clever? Warren is the founder and CEO of Tennis Analytics. It's currently the largest worldwide match database in sports. Uh, has close to 20 employees. Client of the USTA, Tennis Canada, 40 NCAA tennis teams, numerous academies, ATP, WTA players, to name a few. Novak Djokovic, Joe Wilfried Songa, correct my uh, pronunciation. Perfect, perfect. Grigor Dimitriov, Maria Sharapova, Victoria Azarenka. Numerous events, Orange Bowl, is actually a sponsor. Grew up in South Africa, listed as being from uh, Johannesburg. I believe he's actually from Nelspree. We'll have to ask him about that. Came to the U.S. with college tennis. He's been in beautiful Utah more than 30 years. Played for Weber State. As a senior player, he's won 11 USTA balls, four national titles. Actually, that might be uh, more than that at this point. Might not be updated. Um, Following college, like lots of us, he worked as a tennis teaching professional for many years. I'm going to guess 15. He was the director of tennis at Park, the Park City Racquet Club. Park City, what a beautiful place. Former president of USBTA, Intermountain. Maybe Warren should have uh, applied to be the uh, CEO of uh, the USTA. They're looking for a CEO. There's still time. There's still time. I think it might be closed by this point, but, uh, you know, he's done from A to Z. He's well-liked, intellectual. Um, I think it'd be wise to uh, have someone like Warren be hired by the CEO. Um, his connection with Dartfish, we'll ask him about that, software, product, technical, tactical analysis is for sports. Uh, based on his passion, his intellectual curiosity, I think he became Dartfish's first client which led to a, a role as a pioneer leader for, for Dartfish. You'll be able to tell when you listen to him, he's a great speaker. He's made presentations all over the world. I think um, many things we can talk to him about. I'm interested in talking to him about other sports. I know his daughter played um, soccer at Harvard. The, um, but let's get Warren on the phone. Um, the, uh, I would say that Warren knows a lot about Dick Braden's contributions to tennis. I was uh, one time at a USPTA function and I went up to him. Uh, you know, I'd met him years earlier and uh, I said, you spent uh, quite a bit of time with Vic as of late. And he actually said, no, no. I, uh, he had spent time with uh, Mark Jakes, Dave Nostrand, and a young Andy Fitzell. Um, but let's uh, call him up on my phone skills, Flanagan. Always a bit of suspense here. Dialing once. Hello there. Good evening. Warren Pretorius, Brandon Flanagan, Steve Smith. Hey, Warren. Hi, guys. How are you? Fantastic. Thank, thank you for taking time out of your hectic schedule to be a guest on our podcast. Um, yeah. Looking forward to it. Um, just went through some of the things that you've done in tennis. Um, we just did an overview, but uh, like we do with most of our players, uh, or I should say most of our guests, you're starting tennis. I, it reads that you're from Johannesburg. I thought you were from Nelspray. Is that how you pronounce it? 
No, yeah, yeah, and elsewhere. No, I'm I'm from Johannesburg. I was born there, played tennis there, and but I had family up in Nelspruit. Oh, okay. And so, so that's my connection up there. Okay, because I know I um, yeah. I can't pronounce his name right. Petrus Kukimor, great guy, but uh, Petrus Kukimor, yeah, great guy. The uh, let me hear you say it one more time. Petrus Kukimor. Yeah, one time I introduced him to to a guy, and he goes. Hey Pete, how you doing? <laughs> with uh, Johannesburg, high altitude. With uh, yeah, I don't think it was wise over all those years where the, the South African Tennis Union would bring uh, all the juniors to Johannesburg for high altitude tennis. Um, although, with that being said, I think the USTA they'd be wise to have a place like in Park City or in uh, Colorado Springs. So you have a combination of experiences playing up in high altitude. But tell us about your beginning yeah, well, in tennis. Yeah, so, so I was a junior, you know, I played a lot of sports. So it was, um, we grew up in, a, in a, a very, very much a soccer family. And my dad used to coach my mom, you know, my brothers, my, my sister, and everyone was, was involved with soccer. Um, so after soccer, every day I used to go and play, play tennis. So he'd go wait for my mom to get done. Yeah, on the weekends, she played a tennis club, and then juniors were actually not allowed to play in that tennis club. So I just go grab a racket and hit against the wall, and and I always loved it. And then I started playing, and I think I was more serious about soccer up until I was about fourteen and fifteen. And then I then everyone started growing around me, and I was not as good at soccer when I was sixteen as you know fifteen and sixteen um, because. It's, just because of physique and all my friends were much, you know, growing six foot and they were much better soccer players. So I be, I've, I was in tennis, obviously. I just started playing much more tennis. And, um, you know, I wasn't, I grew up in a family, I didn't have a lot of, um, I wasn't in a family that could afford to, to pay for private lessons, you know, every week. I used to get maybe a half an hour private lesson here and there. Um, but I used to, you know, try to take group lessons. And when I did, or when I was able to get a group lesson, a private lesson, I would, um, you know, be there half an hour early, ride my bike up to the court, go sit and listen to him teach, uh, teach the lesson before me. And then I'd sit and wait and lap everything up. And then I would go out, take my half an hour lesson. And immediately when I, when I got done, I'd go, go down to the bottom court and go and hit on the wall. So you know, really, you know, really got my my, my money's worth out of that that thirty minute lesson. Um, and then I took group lessons, and I love the big thing is I love to compete. But it's just always playing matches, as many matches, practice matches as possible. With I was so, going to ask about soccer. Uh, your your daughter played soccer at Harvard, correct? Yeah. So uh, so yeah, in Park City, she grew up in at the. Um, you know, playing competitive soccer, she was very good, a lefty. She was also, she was a good, she not was, she is a good athlete. And she, um, yeah, she, she played, uh, could play tennis, played all sports. And then, but soccer is what she loved. And um, she ended, she was also a very smart, you know, bright kid, um, very driven, motivated. You never ever had to tell her to do, um, we never ever, you know, groomed her to go to Harvard. But she, you know, she got in on academics, and then obviously the soccer, being a good soccer player was the difference maker. And so she went to Harvard, yeah, and graduated there. 
and is now um, she went to medical school at University of Utah, and then um, right now she's a fourth year resident in New York City. So, so I, she'll be done pretty soon, and then she's going to be, go to a fellowship after that. She'll start that in July. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. Dave Har- uh, Dave Fish, the longtime Harvard coach, uh, it heard him yeah. say one time is that uh, you got to be wound up in achievement from kindergarten mm. to get there. But Brandon and I, we both went to Harvard, didn't we? Right, right, Brandon? Spoke uh, during commencement at Harvard, actually. Yeah, for five years I spoke at commencement. Uh, I was there when Bill Gates was there. You know, I, with, uh, we were both training tennis teachers at Harvard. Yeah, but, uh, All right, yeah, and they, they have a very good tennis tennis team this year. I mean, yeah. you know, they they always, you know, it's, it's the whole thing. I think a combination of having a, a smart kid, you know, who can, who can, you know, um, play independently, think independently out on court, a smart kid and a good athlete, I mean, you know, lends itself very well to being a good tennis player. So they've had, they've had great, you know, really good teams. And, and this year is no, no exception. Actually, Henry von Schnellenberger, I think he's playing number one. He was sent to me when he was eight. He's an American who grew up in Switzerland. David Squire, an Australian coach, sent him to work with me. And I remember him telling me he was eight years old. He said he'll be able to do 80 double jumps. He said he'll do more double jumps than anyone there. And he beat everybody in mini tennis, which which was pretty much the case. Um, But I remember staying at Fish's house, and I was training the tennis camp staff. Brandon was a director there at one time. And um, I don't think I knew how to use my um, GPS, but I remember stopping at a toll gate and I asked the guy, I said, how do you get to Harvard? Because they went, Dave and his wife Bonnie went into work like at 4.30 in the morning, opening day, and I had to go like at 7.30. And I remember the guy said, oh, that's easy. Get to Harvard, you just have to study, study, study. But my question would be that the, the tennis parent in soccer and the tennis parent in tennis I was just thinking that, I mean, there's so many things we could talk to you about, but uh, what are some of the differences coming to your mind? Um, well, I mean, you, uh, you know, I, I, we, we all, we all, you know, lived as coaches because I coached at Park City, uh, or first was at Ogden Athletic Club. I was the, the director of tennis there for a couple of years before becoming director in Park City. Uh, that's before I got into analytics and that. And, um, like you know, I mean, we see the, the very best and the very worst of, of tennis parents. So I think that, you know, for I used to go to these soccer matches and, you know, quite frankly, I was appalled at, at how some of the parents, be, you know, behaved, you know, living vicariously through their kids. So I saw, I saw pretty much the same thing as I saw in tennis. And, you know, we would never, ever get, I would never, ever get caught up in it. Because it was always like, and you know, we we all, a lot of times, especially when your kid is playing competitive soccer, you didn't always agree with what the coach was doing. But we would never ever go to the coach and say, "Hey, you should be doing this, this, and this." Um, it was always up to up to him, and then uh, we just, you know, we coached our kid, our kids, to say, "Hey, you know what? It's like you need to just, you know, basically listen to your coach." And we're, not, we're going to be cheering you on on the side, but we're not going to be the ones who will motivate you, but we're definitely not going to be the ones, you know, you, you, you're not going to be embarrassed by us on the sideline. If anything, you'll be embarrassed because we're cheering so loud. But otherwise, we, we you know, learned 
I'd learned my lesson pretty hard from what I'd seen, you know, on, on, on tennis parents. I just think sometimes when it's a group of parents that are, are part of a team uh, versus an individual, uh, the, the team parent comes, they come together a little bit more. I think it's, you know, I think the social aspects, like say in college tennis, when the parents get together, makes it a little bit better. I always tell the tennis parents, be the furthest from the fence. And then it's, you could actually be at a tournament and no, they, no one knows who your child is. Then you're doing a really, yeah. then you're doing a really good job. Good. Yeah. Good. Good point. Good tip. With, uh, Brandon, uh, you want to continue? Go ahead. You can ask yeah, questions. sure. About the parenting, um, I'm just kind of from your perspective, uh, how how you were parented growing up. You're you're a guy who played multiple sports, as you said, and you know we're we're able to play tennis um, throughout as well. But in, in, into college, from your perspective, growing up in South Africa and the way you were parented, how much has that changed? Do you think to up to present day? Well, I think growing up over there, at that time, there were, there were a couple of things. You know, there's some big cultural differences. which, first of all, it's like, you know, we definitely grew up in that sort of the spare the rod, spoil the child mm. philosophy. So, you know, we we, 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 we all grew up, you know, um, we were, I grew up in a very, you know, interesting but, you know, sad, you know, sad time. I mean, I grew up during apartheid. Mm. So I took, you know, we, we I spent two years in the army there. And... Um, but you grow up with that thinking that, hey, when you get done with high school, you know, you're going to, um, you're going to go to the army. So I think that how parenting you know, works and even how sports, how coaches work and all that, they work very, it was very, I don't want to sound wrong here, but it was very, you know, kind of militaristic. It was like, hey, you, you listen to what your coach says and you listen to what your parents say. So, so my my parents, you know, my my dad was a and you know, played a lot of soccer. He played semi pro, and he also used to box. So he didn't play any tennis. Um, but he, he, you know, the, the, the only negative thing was was that you know he'd uh, I'd always come to him, and I used to dread going to him and saying, "Can I have a check, you know, to pay for this tennis tournament?" Because I used to go play these tennis tournaments and lose first round, and a lot of them were just single elimination. Um, it was great when there was a round robin. I liked the round robin format much better because then I got to play more. Mm. But there were often times I played these tournaments and, and lose. And then I'd go, go back home and have to ask for another you know, check. And my dad would say, hey, you know what? I'm paying all this money. It's like, when are you going to win? And so I, I learned like, you know, really early on. And then like, I, I felt like I knew I was getting better. And, you know, I, I, I just tell him, I go, hey, you know, I, I don't know. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, I really enjoy it. I, I live for, for the competition. Um, but eventually that, uh, that, that turned around and, you know, I started, you know, winning a bit and, and all of that and, and, and got over here. But, um, I remember my, my dad once, you know, he, he used to be working and it was my mom who used to take us to the tournaments, drop us off and we'd carpool and all that. So, so she would watch. But I remember one day, um, one very vivid incident was me playing and like um, losing my, my temper on the court and, throw, and you know, throwing my racket. And I didn't know that my dad was watching. And my dad walked out on the court and just said, give me your racket and go shake hands with, it, with the kid on the other side. And I gave him my racket and, he, and I went and shook hands. 
And he said, get in the car. We're going home. And so it was a very hard, hard lesson because I had to, you know, the, you know, default out of that time was very embarrassing. And then he wouldn't give me my racket back. He, he said, you, you, you know, you don't deserve to play tennis. Like you're throwing your rackets around. You spend a lot of money on them. And, you know, you, you basically, you, what are you, what are the reasons you, you're playing? And I, you know, then I had to think about it, and 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 I think uh, that was a good a good lesson. So I go back and I, you know, I actually think I think my dad actually got that from because he coached soccer, so he also was an, you know, he could uh, he he uh, he could use his coaching skills from soccer and translate them over to you know into tennis. And while I didn't like it at the time, it was, it was a very valuable, you know. Uh, Lesson in tennis for tennis, but also in life. Um, but my but my parents were very supportive always. Loved us to be active. You know, you go, you play, you you compete, you be part of a team, and they would they, they would do anything for us to be able to be active. And I think it was much easier then also because you know we all grew up at that time that we didn't have TV. In fact, you know, in, in South Africa, we we grew up probably. 10 years behind what was happening in the U.S. I mean, when I was, you know, 15 or 16, we only had, we didn't have full you know, TV all day. You know, we had three or four hours in the evening and it was still very much, um, there was maybe only two channels. So, so we, we actually grew up um, in South Africa at that time with, you know, TV and all that, very much like um, so my in-laws grew up. So, so I think we, you know, for us in in South Africa, they were you go outside and you play. You when you get older, you're going out. You're very active. You in the park, you're playing playing pickup soccer. You're riding your bike. You're riding your bike to play tennis. You're doing things. You're not sitting around. You're not sitting around watching TV. Were you pretty much self-taught as a tennis player? Yeah, I I, I think I was a visual learner. I think I, I had I, I had a couple of good uh, good good coaches. You know, there was it was one one guy. His name um, he was he was good, um, but there were some like flaws that he, he was a great player. Um, he, his name is, his name is Prince, uh, uh, and he you know he went over. He played Wimbledon. He played in Germany. He played all over the place. He, he was he was really really good, um, but he was he was more. Um, he didn't. He wasn't a, um, a technician, and there were a couple of things, you know. Uh, uh, then, it's like, I, um, uh, like I get ragged on by by Andy. Andy Fitzgerald is just like, you know, he, he'll he'll talk to me about my palm up serve, and I do. I have a palm up serve, but it's very very difficult to correct. You know, that in the years and years of that ingraining, um, it's, it's kind of like my slicing golf. You know, very good at slicing. Um, because I've practiced it so much, so um, so so uh, so I, I wish I, I had a I, I, going back. You know, I, would, I looked at it and I would say, if, you know, I had a coach. I think that probably probably could have done a better job at at, at developing at, at, at developing technique early on, and I didn't I didn't get that. So I. So one of the things I did I did get from playing all those matches, from playing pickup matches, is um, competing. And and then yeah, then I got um, 
but I think you, you know lack of technique, like we know, um, um, limits you on execution of strategy. So I don't think I, I think I could have been better if my technique was better. Um, but again, it's, um, it's it's difficult to say at this stage. So. And then from there, um, you were recruited and came to the U.S. Um, yeah, I actually went. I, I've actually given up tennis, and they're not given up tennis. But I, I, I sort of I got out of the army. When I was in the army, I got to play quite a bit of tennis. I was very lucky that I uh, that I could play um, play tennis because I got to play for the defense force, which um, you know you got to play. Uh, I got to play a, a lot of tournaments and all that. So after my first six months, then it was pretty easy. So we spent two years. So I got to play tennis, and when I got done with the army, um, much to my my dad's chagrin, was I, I had a, a bursary at a at a at a very big company called Goldfield, and you know, it was a gold mining um, um, company, and they um, they gave me a bursary. So it was seven years of study, and then seven years, and I can work for them for seven years. And I turned it down. My dad was not very happy about it. Um, so I, I felt like I wanted to travel. So to cut a long story short, is I went to Israel because it was the cheapest ticket that my buddy and I could, could get. But I took my racket bag with me. And when I got over to Israel, I you know, went with my friends and all that, and we went to work on a kibbutz. My kibbutz was in Haifa. And in Haifa, there was a tennis center, Israeli tennis center. And there was a guy there, his name's Ronnie Sender, and he was he was the, the director there. And you know, I, I went, I started teaching on the kibbutz first, okay. And I started, and, and they said, "Oh, well, you play tennis." And I said, "I, I said, yeah, you know, I can." And I taught some I done some teaching, and they said, "Well, we'll tell you what. Instead of you going out into the fields, you know, picking cotton and bananas and all of that with the rest of the guys, why don't you you can just stay here and just teach tennis?" So I was going, "That's great." So I taught taught the kids on the kibbutz in the afternoon, and in the mornings I'd catch the bus and go to that Israeli tennis center. And when I was there, um, there were some guys. There was Gilad Bloom, and um, uh, there was Shah Perkis was playing. Gilad Bloom and Amos Mansell, all really really good good players. And so I went there, and I was initially I met this guy, and I was just a hitting partner. I just went and hit balls. And he, he then told me, he said, you should go play college tennis. And it was him who helped me um, apply to some colleges. And I went back to South Africa after, after that. And I, I went to Wimbledon in 1985. This is when Becker had um, uh, uh, beat Kevin Curran in the finals. So I went from Israel to, and I did some traveling, played some tournaments, and then uh, went to Wimbledon. I did not, not to play, but you know, just to be there, and then I went back to South Africa and worked, and then got a, and then got that scholarship. The first scholarship I got a scholarship at Limestone College, which is in Gaffney, South Carolina, and it was an NAIA school. And then a friend of ours was at the University of Utah. Um, his name is um, Greg Menges, and Greg Menges and a guy called Paul Lovin were really good players in South Africa, and they were at the University of Utah. And they, um, they uh, said, hey, there's this coach at Weber State um, who's looking for players. And so I applied there. And it was actually um, Brad Ferreira and myself came over at the same time and, and played it on, on 
um, on, on Weber State's team. So they were a, a small Division One school and with a great travel schedule and a really good team. And that's why, you know, that's where I ended up. And that's how I got to Utah. And I'm still in Utah. So. Well, that's interesting. Uh, just names. Uh, I remember Gavin Hopper. I was uh, allowed to hire him to work at an academy. It was called Suguzo Bassett. It's now Chris Severs. Yeah. And uh, I actually did a slow motion analysis for Amos Mansdorf. He never saw it. I remember doing one for Wally Masur. Those players were traveling with Gavin Hopper. Uh, but at one point, uh, I know Dick Savitt, uh, they, the t- uh, Tennis Israel, um, there was just a, one period where they were using Braden's uh, first book, uh, Tennis for the Future, um, to, to help their, help their coaches. Um, with uh, Paul Lobin, uh, I know he was uh, a young junior that was brought over by Craig Webster. It's, it's, it's yeah, interesting yeah, exactly, and, and 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 Greg Menges also. Okay, yeah. yeah. With uh, but no, I can uh, remember being at the Orange Bowl and uh, with a player by the name of Ruben Perchek from Columbia, and uh, one of the Israeli coaches just came up and said, "You guys like Vic Braden." You could just tell by the way they hit the ball. But um, yeah, and it was actually a South African guy, uh, um, Ian Froman, who was at Ramata Sharon in in Tel Aviv, and he, he, they actually it was a South African guy. Yeah, he started the Israeli tennis center, and then they put them up all over the the country. Not all over, but they had a few of them in the country, and they were very successful early on, and. Um, you know, they then they didn't differentiate between girls and boys. When they were brought up in development, they just said you're players. And it was very, you know, forward thinking even then. So that was in the in the late seventies, you know, early eighties. That they uh, that they had that philosophy. So yeah. there were quite a few good players come out of that. We we touched kinda of a little bit on the, the parenting. Um I think it would be great to hear, say, the 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 lessons you've learned, um, you know, as becoming a, a scholar athlete yourself, and then having your daughter go on to to uh, become a student athlete at Harvard. Um, I know there's a lot of tennis parents that listen to this. What are some of the the parenting strategies that you kind of took from your parents, or some some parent parenting strategies you used? Uh, you know, Spare the rod and spoil the child. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> say, 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 say that one more time. I know you said it twice. Say it spare one more time. The, yeah, spare the rod and spoil the child. Okay. That was a little bit of... Uh, no, we, we, we never... We, we grew up... Um, um, I, I think it was my... my the, the reason I, our kids, you know, kids did well at school was because of my wife. I mean, it was... It was, it was, she was very supportive of everything that they did. And so we never, ever, we were not going to be helicopter parents, um, you know, or bulldozer parents. And that was, it was very much, our daughter, our daughter was, we have an old, you know, an older son. And he was, um, um, he, he's, he's very different. He's motivated by different things. So, you know, for what motivates one kid doesn't, you know, there's not one size for all. So for, um, uh, all the kids, uh, all the kids were to, you know, just, just, just motivating was, you know, trying to get him to make sure he did his math homework kind of thing and trying to say, hey, if you get an 
if you get an A, it's like we'll do this, you know, we'll, there'll be a reward, or if you get a B or whatever. Um, uh, but our, our daughter was where to sort of, I don't want to say demotivator because she always had that um, pretend, uh, that, um, what do they call it, the um, imposter theory. She never ever thought, even through school, that she was good enough um, to be with the smart kids. She didn't, she always saw herself as not being smart. And we knew she was very smart, but one of the things she had was a great work ethic. And we never, you know, for us, it was, it was even when she was at Harvard, you know, she'd call us and be saying, oh, you know, all my friends are going out, and this is a Friday night. Uh, all my friends are going out, and but I've got this big test on the on Monday, and um, you know I I, I want to go, but I also don't want to get a I don't want to you know, screw up my I need to study, and I'd just be saying to her, hey, you know what, go out with your friends because there's more to it, more to being at Harvard than just um, getting A's. So. She, she was like that the, the, the whole way through through school. Like a really great athlete, worked very hard, but always carried that imposter theory. And for us, it was more a me telling her, you know, I'll give you five bucks if you get a B, rather than because we know that she's striving to get those A's. So she was over, you know, motivated right from the word go. And even when she was five, six years old, she always wanted to be a doctor. So you now she's a doctor. Um, but then I've got a younger son, and he was right in between. He didn't want anyone to help him with anything he was doing. No help with homework. He's always a kid who said, no, I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. And he, very early on, he said, don't compare me to Alex. That was his whole thing. Was, was just that he was going like, hey, you know what? I'm going to get B's, and I'm going to get some C's and that, but it's okay. I know what I'm doing. So I think all of them were totally different. So we didn't have a plan. You know, if, you, if you've got a plan, then you try and execute that plan with all your kids. I think for us, it was sort of saying, um, you know, being there to support them, particularly in um, extracurricular activities, which we we were very we adamant that they uh, that they did. And I think that the most important thing is making sure you um, who they hang out with. And I think it was, it was a quote that Vic, Vic used to say that, you know, if you want to soar with the eagles, don't hang out with the turkeys. And, and that was, our kids didn't hang out with turkeys. And I think that was, uh, that was that's probably the, the best thing. That's knowing where the kids were and then supporting them in everything that they, that they did. I think one of the key words there must be flexibility. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not total flexibility. I mean, they just are kids and that. We weren't, you know, I, I can tell you, I, I won't mention them here, but, you know, there were a lot of times I, you know, you fail as a parent. You, you, you do things wrong and you have to go back and, you know, you look at it after the fact and go, oh my gosh, I could have handled that with my kids. You know, it's so, you know, so much different. Um, but, but yeah, it, 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 I, I guess it's flexibility, but I think that, um, I cannot take a, as much credit as what my wife can. You know, she was she was definitely there for them, you know, all the time. And there were a lot of times I was traveling and, you know, not as not not able to be there for them as much as she was. Let me share a joke. Uh, you've complimented your wife a couple of times, which is great. Behind every successful man is a very surprised mother-in-law. <laughs> We, you know, yep. I, I tell people, I tell parents, 
know, sometimes, you know, if, if you don't schmooze, you lose. I mean, the kid sometimes who's getting all A's, I tell the parents, they said, you know, you should let your kid go to see a PG-13 movie. They're just going to get stuck in a back cubicle. You know, they need to be able to greet and meet and have some people skills. So I think you can be over the top with uh, academia. Yeah, I think also we, we, we also, uh, another thing to it, you know, is with the people skills is one of the things with our kids, you know, we, we always, we always, um, we always reared them to be comfortable being around adults. And that was like in a social setting. And that didn't mean that they needed to join in and all of that. But it was like, hey, the first thing, you know, when we tell our kids is you walk over, I introduce you to somebody, you shake their hand and you look at them in, the, in their eye. And, um, and, and then once, well, once you're done with the introductions, then, then you leave, you, you know, you, you go to your play with the kids and that, but all of our kids were very comfortable if they had a dinner table or if they, they had a table and they invited to join in on the conversation. Um, they were all very comfortable doing that, which also means that, you know, you, as a parent, you gotta, you gotta listen to them and let them form their own opinions. And, um, a, a lot of the times they're wrong. Um, but, but yeah, that was the other thing. Is our kids always grew up very social, definitely socially um, comfortable. Coming back to the term militant, uh, Dennis Vandermeer, who I spent so many years with, what are your thoughts on the difference between the, I don't know, you want to categorize people, the Dutch and the English as far as uh, the Afrikaner? Uh, Dennis used to just say, the Afrikaner is, and I've spent so much time with South Africans, um, a little bit more disciplined than the average Joe, the typical family. Kind of the yes sir, no sir, respect, yeah. your, respect your elders. And I, you know, I've been there in recent years in South Africa and think that's very much alive and well in South Africa in comparison to other countries. Yeah, I mean, you, we don't want to generalize and all that, but, but, but definitely, it's the, you know, Afri- the Afrikaners were more um, conservative, and where the English were a, little, were a little bit more liberal. So, the, um, so I, I got to experience all of this, you know, pretty firsthand because my dad was Afrikaans, and my mom was English, and actually, you know, they were they were, they were sort of frowned upon. I think um, more so from the Afrikaans side, from my dad's family side, that he had married. An English, you know, an, an English woman. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's like in the army for, uh, um, for sure. The, the, the Afrikaners um, are a very, you know, very proud nation. And um, um, a, a lot of, you know, a lot of apartheid, we won't get into it, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of apartheid, which was, uh, which is horrific. Um, you know, we all grew up in it, and you know, while there's no excuse, I mean, the propaganda, the, the machine over there, you know, you lived in it, and yet you weren't always asking the questions. Um, those questions, you know, then I, I really had to re- reflect because I grew up at the end of apartheid, I, I went overseas, and then I, when you were outside of the forest, I mean, that's when you, when you really look back and, and, and question, you know, what, um, you know what had happened, what you had lived through, why you didn't do anything when you while you were there. But going back to the, the English and Afrikaans, is that you know apartheid was basically inherited from you know English uh, colonial system, and and the, uh, the Afrikaners, you know, nation they they implemented it 
you know, formed their own republic, and you know, uh, and then it uh, you know became a, a Dutch or Boer um, colony before then returning back to becoming um, you, you know um, being a, an English colony, then going you know becoming a republic and having a nationalist or Afrikaner government. But yeah, the, the Afrikaans people um, were, were um, in my opinion, were you know were, were more um, more conservative, a very proud, disciplined nation. Um, and now, obviously, it's, it's, it's you know things have changed a lot, but still, you know, you, I think a lot of the Afrikaners uh, people are held in in, in, in very high regard. Um, well, yeah. Maybe not for, their, for all of their political views, but definitely for their work ethic and. Well, sure. yeah. and, and I think that's true for, for South Africans in general. You know, it's um, work, hardworking people. The Afrikaner, um, for the most part, the the, the English settlers were um, cityfied, and the the Afrikaner was countryfied. Correct. The Afrikaners were mostly farmers in the early days. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 um, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't generalize, and I don't know, know enough about it. But, I, but, but I think there was some. I think, I, 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 um, true. I think you know, in the beginning, you know, it was, it was definitely an agricultural, um, uh, um, an agricultural based economy early on, and also mining. You remember that, you know, it was gold and diamonds and and all of that. So when the Boers, the Afrikaners split with the English, you know, they they. They took that great trek, and that was the the, um, the pioneers, and they, they call them fur trekker. Okay, a fur trekker is, is a pioneer, and they actually Afrikaans people then took their ox wagons and all that, and and went into into you know to form their own republic, and um, and they were definitely you know definitely you know farmers, and and I don't think they intended to go out and build cities. It was more to find their own land away from the English and, um, you know, farm. One thing is Roger Federer, I think we've all read so much about Roger Federer. He's a little bit afraid of his mother. When he was a kid, he was a little bit afraid of his mother, Lynette Afrikaner. My oldest, yeah. my oldest yeah, brother, who uh, was in charge of, he was a GM, actually a GM twice, associate GM. You know, let's see, the Winnipeg Jets, the Toronto Maple Leafs, Chicago Blackhawks. And I remember him saying he wanted to draft players who were afraid of their mother. And I know that uh, that's good for some boys that they, they fear, fear mom a little bit. With, uh, maybe, yeah. one, maybe I missed the boat on this one, but uh, could you explain what a bulldozer parent is? A bulldozer parent is like you know, having a goal for their kids and sort of going ahead of them and bulldozing and just um, moving or snowplow parent is another, another way of looking at it. And what they do is Instead of having their kids, they don't want their kids to make mistakes along the way. So what they do is they just bulldoze, bulldoze the path in front of them, and then you know so that their kids can come out nice and easy. It's kind of like the analogy with uh, the, the the parent the the parent carrying their kid's tennis bag uh, when they to the to the court and carrying it back and all that. It's kind of like that would be like a simple analogy. It's kind of like but uh, using the the tennis bag as a um, as an analogy to a lot of other things in um, in life. This is and, uh, and saying that. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but um, way to sum that up, I think quite quite well is 
do you prepare the road for the kid or do you prepare the kid for the road? And what's going on, exactly. what's going on too much now is yeah, the bulldozer for sure. Yeah. With, uh, politics, I know you know so much about tennis. Um, we need to get to tennis, but with apartheid, the South African culture, South African society is so complex with all different languages and religions. Um, I went one time, uh, was driving across the U.S. with a young South African player, and we went into an Indian reservation. And I said, you know, apartheid was wrong, 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 but there's a great statement, never trust government, just ask the Native American. But I wanted to ask you, uh, this is a political question, Joel, perhaps, Joel Trucker, who you, you know, a great writer. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I know Joel. He, um, he wrote one time that... Um, you know, white South Africans grew up where they're so politically aware. I think I think Brandon and I are in the same boat, both from small towns in upstate New York. Um, my parents never looked for the key to, for the car because they're always in the car. And my parents didn't even have a key to the house. Um, but, you know, if you do go through the alphabet soup, the USPTA, the PTR, the ATP, the WTA, the WTT, um, you know, many... Um, South Africans, uh, one of our students, uh, Craig Tiley, who runs uh, yeah. the Australian... Australia, Australian uh, Open, yeah. With, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Was it, did you grow up? Did you feel like, you know, was that through society, through the army? Um, and actually, years ago, I mean, the Germans, the Swedes, there's lots of, there was lots of players that came to the U.S. that grew up and matured like you did going to the army for two years. But what are your thoughts on a young South African being more politically aware than people from other countries? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's, uh, you know, again, I, I would hate to say, oh, yes, all South Africans are, are politically aware because I don't, I don't think that was, you know, always the case, even when you're growing up in apartheid. I mean, when you fed propaganda and you don't know what is going on, I think, you know, it's difficult to be politically aware internally. So I think that. Um, like a lot of uh, you know a lot of um, kids who are sort of grown up with you isolated, you you need to learn to the, the culture was was very much you know during the embargoes and during, you know, uh, just because of the geographic isolation. But even now, you know I think a lot of um, the, the this um, bed, this, uh, the, the nurturing. Is from a different point of view. Is that one is that you have to be globally aware. You got to be aware of of everything that's happening. You know, um, and, and not um, not all South Africans are, are like this, but a lot of them are. You've got to be globally aware, which means you sort of got to have. You've got to be politically aware, and also you've probably got to work a lot harder because um, you know a good example is is, is Pietrus Kukumer. I mean, you know, he was over there. And he has yet to work really, really hard. And you know, now I'm very happy for him being over in the States. But he's a very good coach. And you know, he had to work the, you know, really, really hard simply because of the fact that you know, it was difficult for him to get over there. And I think a, a lot of South Africans understand that. And they understand that the, the, it's, um, it, it takes a lot of hard work. Craig Tiley is, uh, is another you know, great example. Um, so I think that you find a lot of South Africans who have, who have come over and have done, you know, pretty well because their work ethic and their, you know, being globally aware, um, 
you know, uh, lends itself. I think the average American, the average American kid, and, and you know, I, I, I'm a U.S. citizen, uh, as are my kids. I think I'm very blessed to, to live over here. It's, uh, it was, you know, just I always look at it, and it's, it's, I really look at it as a lottery. You know, I was lucky to, I was lucky to be born. Um, I, I, I really, and I, and I know I, I'm, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, but you know, I re- really, the, the whole thing about white privilege is very, very real. Um, and you know, because I've lived through it, and you know, I was lucky. I was lucky to be to, uh, to be born with with, with a skin color that gave me advantages that other people didn't have. And I think a lot of people don't don't realize this. And you know, when we start talking about like the whole thing about you, you hear people with the Black Lives Matter, which I firmly support. Um, you had to some people, you know, and, and especially you know white people would be looking at it and saying, "Oh, it's not Black Lives Matter; it's all lives matter." They don't get it. And, um, I I I understand. I, I go, "Hey, you know what? You're just very lucky to be born not only born with the color of your skin, but born into the economic circumstance that you're in. You know, into a middle class and all that." Um, you know, born into being able to have the education that you have. Um, being born in a in a in a first world kind of country, you, it's very lucky. It's like it's just you you're just lucky to have what you have, and you've got a springboard. Um, so so I think that uh, as you combine that with all the other elements, you know, with the with working hard, having a good good work ethic, not taking anything for for granted. I think that that you know you 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 set yourselves up. You set yourself up to be successful when you're aware of all, all these things. Um, no, it's a great point. I, I, I tell juniors certainly. Yeah. I drive in minivans. I've been doing that for a long time. Uh, you know, hundred years ago, Brandon was in the minivan. Is to teach perspective. The, I think just a good lesson or a theme is the life that people were born into. So we're driving to tennis courts, and we drive by, and we see people that are, you know mowing lawns and trimming bushes and, you know, same thing when you go into a, in this country, a, a coffee shop like Panera, you know, the kid on the other side of the counter, the, the tennis kid, especially, I mean, um, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, tennis parents is like they have a hundred dollar bills falling out of their pocket. And um, yeah. And I ask kids yeah. all the time, do your parents have a money tree in the backyard? And the follow-up question, does it have $1 bills or a hundred dollar bills? And just make them stop and think about how privileged they are. I think, yeah, um, absolutely. And I think also just to to to, to say we'll say one thing is I think you know a lot of kids and, and this is in this is in South Africa you know um, all over. But I think that, that, that a, lot, a lot of kids in the in the US grow up you know thinking that the US is the center of the universe, mm. and they're not globally aware. You, you know, that, um, like if. Um, if they were to look at a map and say, you know, point out Ukraine, uh, which is what is happening there, you know, we have to say it's horrific. There are people suffering there. Um, and we're very, you know, again, I look at them and I go, like, well, I'm, you know, I'm so lucky where I'm at because you could have been born and you could have been, you could be over there with your family now. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it is. Um, so, so anyway, there's, there's a lot of kids over here grow up are not aware of what is where Ukraine is, or even you know what is going on there. 
I oh, think that that a, a lot more kids in in South Africa, you know, are aware of what is going on, and they're very aware of how the the, the economy, how the U.S. Um, if you've got a, a, a president makes uh, makes a, a decision, or you know, um, if he whatever the U.S. president does, it uh, doesn't just affect what is happening in the U.S. as a leader of the of the you know the modern world. It affects, there's a trickle-down effect. And I think that, you know, kids in South Africa live it. They live in that trickle-down. Mm. Um, I've heard many South Africans say... I think you just grow up being more aware. I've heard many South Africans say, well, we grew up on the other side of the world. Um, no, if we, we Americans, if there's a geography test, we, we don't do very well um, in the backyard vision. Here's something, too, I think that uh, helps South Africans because they're so, long, they're so far away from home, they're, they're, they're certainly not going home for the weekend. So I think that um, there are a long ways from home. Uh, going way back to the 70s, I met so many South Africans, and there's always been, I think, a, you could tell us a problem with the exchange rate. But South Africans could come over, and they'd all, for the most part, it was like they all were given a few diamonds. If they were to hit a rough patch, their parents said, well, put this in your pocket. This this may help you out when you really get stuck for some money. Um, I always always remember that. Now, Warren, you touched on uh, you know white privilege, and I, you know we we did a podcast now probably a couple of months ago on the movie King Richard, and I thought that illustrated that that same situation really well uh, in relation to the sport of tennis and specifically the Williams sisters. Um, we'll get to tennis analytics and all the statistical analyses that you you do on a daily basis, um, and and what you do there and and your history with that, but. Yeah. It'd be interesting to kind of measure, and maybe you've already done something along these lines, but measure the impact that the Williams sisters' success in the sport of tennis has on has had on other African American girls or boys playing the sport, and maybe something similar along the, along the same lines with with Tiger Woods in golf. Um, but oh yeah, do you have I mean, any, no no doubt about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have any uh, any any analytics, but I mean. Yeah. You know, you, you also look at, at, at kids, you know, a kid like Francis Siapa, mm. you know, with, with his, just his path. Um, he has to, he has also, at some point, there's going to be a book written about, you know, about him, about him and his dad. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's fascinating. I think, you know, power, you know, power to, to his, his parents and, and power to him and also power to the, to the club, you know, for, for, for 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 being involved, so so yeah, and I think I, I think that you know someone like Francis or, or or any 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 minority athlete, you know, has a has a very important, you know, they become role models at a whole different level from you know any any of the other players, um, and it's you know decisions for the most part. I mean, you've you've got some some pretty good role models. Um, like uh, I mean, not perfect. We 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 know that, um, but you've got some pretty good role models in um, in American tennis. You look at you know you're also looking at Sloan Stevens. You're looking at and Madison Keys. Um, there's some good 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 players. I have to get this in for good, Francis. Good role models. This in for Francis TFO. I don't know him, but I was around him for two weeks. I know he practiced and uh, played some doubles with my son, Connor. And what a personality, no stage fright. So I was Papa Smith. See, you know, certainly 
okay, I'm with Connor. So you're okay. Connor Smith, Papa Smith. Yeah. And, but this is something that certainly could be measured. I have to take advantage of this is, uh, I read where, uh, a fellow South African, uh, Wayne Ferreira, he really got yeah. Francis. Brad's off, brother. Yeah. Yeah. He got Francis off the phone. You know, like, I think it's pretty much okay. Nine to five. You're not using your phone. You're, mm-hmm. you're practicing. Someone wrote an article where they, they were, uh, spot checking, the big three, Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer, and when they were lifting weights in the gym, in between sets or in between reps, they weren't going to their phone. And they they, they uh, did the same spot check on three other younger players. And, you know, they would, you know, go bench press or go then go do some curls, and in between they were checking their phone. I have to get that in because we're, we're anti-phone. Um, but I'd love to ask kids, uh, that's a measurement, um, how many hours per day are, uh, of screen time? But I, I've heard this many times. If, if there was a measurement for a desire, um, but let, let's circle back to you know college tennis, and then you got into the tennis teaching side of it. Um, you know, you know, go through that a little bit, and then you know, yeah. then, then dartfish. I think that'll lead us into uh, what you're yeah. doing today. Yeah, so, so I played college tennis, and then I and, and then I uh, walked in. I was not going to teach tennis. I was going to do my MBA at. And what happened is that in Ogden, they there was a, a coach there, a, a great, a, a really good guy, Brad Lowe, um, who I learned a lot from. And he um, he was the the director of tennis, and he decided to to take on a business, a, a buy a business. Um, and so they had a, a position open, and um, there, and they offered me the job. And you know, I was young then, and this was a great opportunity. So I took that job, and I was there for two years, and then applied for the job up in Park City because that opened up and if there was one place in, in Utah that I that I really wanted to live it would it be because it's a pretty liberal town and it's uh, you know beautiful and if there was one place that I wanted to live in Utah it would be in Park City so I applied for the job and I wasn't in a, any, under any pressure to, to get the job because I you know I had a good good job already and I probably because of that uh, because I was sort of relaxed I interviewed pretty well and I got the job, and it was up in Park City at the at the, the, the club up here that you know I, I taught tennis for. I mean, I was a director of tennis there for almost fifteen years, and in that time, I I started. I was very much in uh, very um, uh, interested in technology, and um, and that was also you know in the early days. I think when you start talking about the analytics and. Uh, Compute tennis and, and and then the more portable tennis analyst, uh, a tennis analyst, the little yellow box, which I still got one over here. Um, and you know, just in because of my my, I was always numbers numbers person. Um, I liked stats and I liked um, you know like math and and all that. And uh, but I was also very much into 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 the motor learning part of it, and you know with the visual and kinesthetic learning. And um, so I started using video, video stuff. I had an old, there was an old JVC system that had the video cameras, like a, a box. You know, you had the, the monitor on the top with a camera, and then at the bottom was a car battery. And you'd wheel it out onto the court, and you'd film people. And you could play it back right then and there, just using the, the mini DD tape camera, just the VCR functions, rewind, forward. And I know, I know Steve, you did, the, did exactly the same thing. Um, but I was, you know, I was out there and I was using it. And Park City is the home to the U.S. ski team. 
And so a lot of these skiers used to come over as cross-training. We had a, um, a, a program where these skiers would come over when they're in town doing their, their dry land training and that in, you know, in the, in the uh, warmer months. And they play tennis. And obviously these kids are athletes. They could be good at anything they do. And there were some of them, you know, Lindsey Vaughn played play tennis, you know, um, Bodie Miller, Ted Ligeti, a kid, Eric Schlopi, all of them were athletes. They could play any sport and be really, really good at it. And they come out and play tennis. And one of the kids said to me, you know, when I was videotaping him, said, why don't you use dogfish? And I was going, what? You know, what is, what is that? And it, it, I, I looked, I, I then went to, we went on and I, you know, I researched it and I found this Swiss company called dogfish that was only involved in skiing. And, they and but they had this one technology, uh, this one technology called in the action, and in the action is basically you film. You have the camera connected to the computer, and um, it's filming live on a loop. And what you do then is you, know, you basically the end result is that you can have a player hit their serve and immediately review it, and also have it. And if, if the person knew how to use the software, is have it compared to a pro. So I could, you know, film you, Brandon, and I could film you hit a serve. As soon as you get done hitting that serve, I could have it up on the screen next to Federer, synced up. And um, to, to me, that was mind-blowing. So I had to, you know, I had to explore it, explore it more. And um, why it's powerful is because it bridges visual and kinesthetic learning. And there's that um, phenomenon. It's actually a term you can read about. It's called the carpentry effect. And that's where after you hit, you hit a serve or a golf ball or anything, um, you're, it's like Alka-Seltzer, is that when you put Alka-Seltzer in water, it fizzes really strongly, and then it, it dissipates, it goes away. And um, when you hit a really good drive off the tee and you're walking back to the cart, your brain has still got that Alka-Seltzer still fizzing. You can still feel what you just did. So if you could play back that drive, or that serve or that stroke within, it's about 15 to 20 seconds after you, you perform the motion. So if I can, if I could play that back to you within 15 to 20 seconds, it's um, bridging, it's the ultimate way of bridging visual and kinesthetic learning. And then you could do it over and over and you can make the changes. So when I heard about that, I was, I was all over it. And I contacted Darfish and to cut a long story short, was I was there, became their first tennis client and eventually ended up learning the software really, really well because I, I had to buy it myself. It was very expensive. Then. It was more expensive then than it is now. And I bought the software and I started you know, getting, becoming really, really good at technical analysis. And at the same time, I was working with the USTA with Paul Lubbers, Paul Rotor. Um, Paul Lubbers was actually you know, very heavily involved early on with, dark, with, with me and Darkfish on the tennis side um, on helping steer and guide the, the, the software into because it was, it was a broadcast software and a ski software and it was they were looking to make it more of a, a, a coaching software um, and and anyway so I worked with the USTA and also then um, um, as a as a consultant went and did the initial um, endorsement with USPTA and that was with Tim Heckler and you know went and another South African guy. Um, we went down and we, you know, we, we became an endorsee of the USPTA. And 
it was then, it was about that time that I went full-time with Dartfish. And an interesting thing was happening in analytics at that time, mostly driven by baseball. And this was in the days of that money ball. Um, So it was with Oakland Days and Billy Bean. And they were using analytics to a whole new level. So there's two different areas of, 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 of video analysis. One is on the technical side, like I just explained, with being able to show a player their stroke and that. But the second side uh, it is in match analysis, and it's called tagging. And that is just charting, but indexed to video. And that's what the what Major League Baseball teams, specifically Billy Bean, was, you know, was, was doing. And that is the ability to have this great database and then search a particular player, search their stats, and then click play and watch the associated video. Just the important video that that represents that particular stat. And that was my job. Is you know I was in sales and training of the software for everything for Major League Baseball, for um, NFL, NBA, you know, where college teams, physical therapy, and at the and. But obviously, I was a tennis, a tennis guy at heart. So I'm always thinking about doing, having the money ball um, uh, system in tennis. And that's how tennis analytics got born. And I built the model. And um, I signed on, you know, to, uh, I thought, okay, at some point, it'll, I'll get too busy with the service model because tennis analytics, even now, is a service model and uses Dartfish as a tool. The software tools you can customize and all that, and um, and that's when I, you know I signed the contract with with Novak, and all the, at the same time I was also doing work with Sharapova, with Zivana Reva, Azarenka. Um, I did, did some concierge work with with um, with Roger Rashid. Okay, it was a great a, a great guy, and you know I did some work with him when he because he coached Songa. So I did some work with with Songa and did some work with Dimitrov. Um, technical side, and then also on the on the tagging, and and then sort of working with doing a few college teams, and eventually got too busy, and, and I and I I'm still you know I'm no longer full time with Dartfish, but I'm still very heavily involved with the company at the moment. But I'm a consultant. But that's in about 2013. That's when Tennis Analytics really you know I don't want to say took off because it's all organic growth. Um, but at the moment, you know, where we're at right now is we're working with about over 40 college teams. We work with the USTA. Um, we do, you know, player development. We work with, with, with Martin Blackman, Dave Ramos, and Adam Snook. And they, um, we, we give them the data, the tagging data for, you know, all the top, top US players. We work in Davis Cup, Fed Cup, um, um, Olympics. And I did that for Tennis Canada also. And my relationship with Tennis Canada then was a little bit different because they um, they use analytics. Um, they should almost be a model for how analytics can be used. Because, um, you know, Canada is such a big country and um, they're so geographically dispersed. Um, to get kids to come to a, a regional camp is very difficult. So what they did was they had these national camps and they got a limited budget. But I got involved with them with the 12s and 14s. And within days, I worked with, with um, Debbie Kirkwood and um, Bob Brett. 
and you know Bob was really, really, uh, did, did a great job. Um, well, he did a great job all, all over the place. But um, we, I went out, and basically what we were doing is talent ID and just using data to 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 highlight talent. So, so I got more and more involved with that, and then also started working with Felix, with Felix, with Dennis, worked with Bianca, um, worked with. Um, there were a couple of other Canadians, and then also, it, 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 you know, went. I worked with with Milos. Um, so, and again, just giving them analytics and oppositional scouting data, because you know when you're tagging, there's two different sides you can look at. You can look at one giving the player their own data for their own matches, or you can also look at uh, the other side of it is looking at what the opponents do and then matching it up. And and that's where where I'm at at the moment is um, you know we we evolved we do events we do sponsor Orange Bowl Junior Orange Bowl and at Kalamazoo so to to to, to end off the well, long story of it is that now we've got this which I'm very proud on is, is proud about is that we've got this database and the database is 12 14 16 18 uh, collegiate challenger. And pro, I didn't just focus on the on the pros. We focused on the whole the whole pathway, and that's where there's a lot of data at the moment. I'm still collecting. Yeah, that's uh, that's incredible. Uh, the whole story, and also what you're doing with tennis analytics. Uh, you're obviously doing so much to bring more attention to uh, statistics and and uh, and analytics to the sport. Um, do you still think that the sport of tennis? Uh, outside of, say, the, the work that you're doing is behind uh, when it comes to, in comparison to other sports, when it comes to looking at hard uh, hard stats? Yeah, um, for sure. But there's a lot of reasons you know, um, uh, behind that. Some of it is cultural. Um, uh, I think a lot of coaches coach the way that they were coached or coach the way that, that they um, coach the way that they play or the way that they think they play. Um, analytics in tennis is also challenging because you know a soccer team or a baseball team or you know, you know you put up a camera and you film a game and you're filming 22 players on the field in soccer and you can do all the analytics in tennis you know, if you're a college coach you've got six singles going out there and there's just one of your players is playing so then you've got to have six cameras out there a, a tennis match lasts longer than a than a soccer match generally, okay. And there's there's a lot there's a lot going on in tennis. Um, so then you've got a charter. So let's just say that you've got the average college match is about twelve hours worth of footage, and then somebody's going to break it down. So what happens? It becomes a challenge because the guy goes, "Okay, uh, I know I want to tag this and I want to I want to get this done." But it's going to take me, it's not going to take 12 hours, it's going to take longer than that. Mm-hmm. It's going to take 16 hours. So, um, so it's easier for me to, I'll do it tomorrow. And then they don't do it. And, and that goes back to the whole, the, the whole thing about, you know, raw match, raw match footage. You know, you see all these, even now you see parents and coaches going up and putting, hanging a camera up. And we know what happens with that footage. Generally, nothing happens with that footage because it's got such a short shelf life. Mm. So, 
So they'll, they'll go film a match and then they'll say, okay, you know, I'll go watch it next week. But next weekend they're playing another match. Mm. So then they it just you know just takes up hard drive space. And the only benefit is probably until vanity later on where they can go look at it and say, wow, look what Johnny would look like when he was 12 years old. Now he's like 18. Look how cute he was and, and all that. But um, it it is challenging. It's, it's not, uh, you know, the, the, the technical analysis. I mean, even if you look at it, uh, uh, you uh, you guys know this. I mean, you know, I travel around to quite a lot of you know, academies and, you know, see what's going on out there. And back in the day, it, you could understand it. You could say, hey, you should use video analysis because it's, it's, it's such a powerful tool with teaching technique. You, these are the way people learn. You know, there's visual, kinesthetic, auditory, uh, um, um, it's, it's visual, kinesthetic, um, auditory, um, and then digital, logical. Um, so you bridge learning processes. So why aren't you using video? And they... Um, they say, oh, I've got to buy a camera. I've got to get software and all of that. Well, nowadays, you don't even need to buy anything. It's on your phone. You, you don't need to have an app. You don't have to have Darkfish Express app. You don't have to have any of them. You can just film. But it's very rare when I travel out there that I see coaches filming their kids. You don't have to film them all the time. Just film them every now and again, just as a baseline. Film them hitting their serve and show them what they're doing show them an example, you can, you can you connect it to the internet, then go back and, and practice. And in a few weeks time, film them again and say, hey, take a look at how you've improved. But coaches don't, you know, I don't see that happening. And it's, and it's kind of disappointing because there's no excuse. On the match tagging side, you know, that's a little bit different because it takes, it takes time. Mm. So, Coaches also, typically coaches don't watch matches. Um, the industry, the, the weakness in the industry is that um, when, when we started talking about why um, um, tennis is behind someone with something like baseball or football or, or soccer even, is because um, the, the coaches, are not, the industry, the, the culture in the industry is not set up for coaches to go watch matches. The coaches are going to be at their clubs, teaching private lessons. So the kids become really good at taking lessons. And the exam that they take, they've been taught all the theory, the lesson is the theory, the exam that they take is the match that they play. But nobody's grading it. Nobody's giving any feedback. And even if a coach, even if, so, so parents watch the matches and then they relay some of the information. Hey, Johnny keeps double faulting on, you know, every, you know, he's double faulting too much. And then the coach takes that into information and just says, okay, let's go work on your second serve. But that may, may not be the cause of why he's getting a double fault. Right. Maybe situational. So, so that's the other thing is that then, then the coach does go out and he watches a match. And he's not going to watch every match. He's going to watch a match. So he sits over there and we, we see it. You know, we, um, charting has been around for a long time. I mean, even before CompuTennis, people take a piece of paper out there and they and they'd, they'd chart the matches. But when you're charting and you're using a piece of paper, you having you have to chart pretty much to keep up with the action on the court. You're charting live. Okay? So you so you're, the, the charting that you're doing is very elementary. You're not going to be looking at like uh, 
servant placement return, placement return, contact position, surplus one contact position and placement, uh, and looking at all the rally rally links and, and counting all of them. That kind of depth you've got to be able to do to do after the fact. And then the other thing is, so so for people are, are charting, you know, at a, 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 a not everyone is charting. First of all, they sit and watch the match, and then they. Um, uh, there was a study by Hughes and, Hughes and Frank that was called Notational Analysis in Sports. And they said that, and they did this across all sports, cricket, soccer, uh, rugby, tennis. And one of the things that came out of it was said that generally a coach is less than 45% accurate in their post-match assessment as to why their player won or lost the ball of uh, the, uh, the match. Which, which again just means that, that you know you go uh, your soccer team at halftime uh, when you tell them what to do they they should do exactly the opposite. Um, so the the challenge again in tennis is that coaches watch, but what they do is they fixate it's natural to fixate on the highlights. So what they'll do is like they'll just um, say they'll they'll be out there watching a match and then they'll they'll see their their player making a rally error. And they'll, uh, let's just say the player's hitting, missing a lot of backhand um, in the net. Okay, so then they make a note on this piece of paper and they say, "Oh, well, you know, we really got to go out and we got to go work on that stroke." And we and, and obviously the emphasis is on technical. Let's not make sure they don't miss that that ball in the net anymore. They need to aim higher and they need to add more spin. They need to put more shape on the ball or whatever. And uh, but what they're not looking at is what caused that error. And the cause of the of the error may have been three or four shots preceding that. It may have got you know a a, a um, contributing factor may have been that they serve placement. That hey they they serve they're not aggressive enough on their serve. Maybe they hitting it to the opponent's forehand and the opponent's got control. And instead of the server drawing a uh, uh, hitting a serve that would Draw a forehand for them on the serve plus one that they end up end up hitting backhands and get put behind um, um, behind in the count, if you will, because of their serve and be- or because of their poor return. So, so a lot of those like intricacies, you know, those uh, those details, those subtleties, um, are missed, and um, and you only really get those when you when you're charting matches. You know, and I certainly don't think to say that oh, a player needs to be have every single match charted. That's not realistic either. Mm. But there's got it's got to be a process. And if you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna do this, um, if you're gonna do if you if a player is if a player coach is doing it, you do it over a period of time and you do it consistently, not just like a one time event. Um, but we don't see we don't see you know, coaches doing um, enough of that. Um, I think the average coach likes that, um, you know, looks at it and is very interested in it, um, but, they, but they don't know how to take it, how to take that back to apply to their players and definitely not to monitor their players over time and use those uh, benchmarks. Um, so again, you, you know, a lot of... Um, a lot of challenges, but that's the world that I live in. And it's not just at the junior level. You know, you see it at college levels. It is um, at, even at the at the pro level. Mm. We, we see the same same challenges, a little bit different, but 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's challenging for, yeah. for a lot of different reasons. I know that you work with 40 plus uh, NCAA tennis teams. And I know that the coaches have some very strict rules of the number of hours that they can play. But again, not to be pessimistic, doom and gloom. I know a lot of times players will go through four years of college tennis and the recruiting was just something said during the sales pitch. I should say the charting during the recruiting process was just a sales pitch. Um, you know, we're always telling people just, if you could just chart, you know, 10 points of your serve, 10, just randomly 10 points of your returns, you know, the serve games, return games, um, keep a database, get your own hard drive, get your own pull, get your own uh, GoPro camera. Um, yeah. And, you know, really become a student of the game. I think that players need to become really their own coach and the coach should really be called, this is my tennis compass. This is a person who's giving me directives or directions. Um, but Braden used to always say that you want to chart matches to get objective data on how to structure practice. Um, so the, the tennis court's a mistake center. Yeah. What, what are the mistakes you're making? And if they're not pointed out, um, but I think for years you could comment on this, that tennis coaches, they didn't have the budget and a tennis coach would be watching a college coach. They'd be watching six matches. Maybe maybe there was just one one coach and six matches. Where basketball was six coaches in one match. Um, but yeah. I, I think for people to get the feedback, I mean, if there's there's fifty say fifty points in a set. I mean, and then you're just say five patterns. I mean, the little kids uh, they're missing a serve, they're missing a return, they're missing a forehand, missing a backhand. Maybe the the only other pattern is they're they're going for a home going for a home run derby on their forehand from the wrong place, and it's just the patterns were repeated, and you know they do that at age ten, and they're doing the same thing at age eleven, and they really get stuck in the mud, but they don't know that until yeah. they get down the road. Yeah, and I think that you know we we hear this all the time. It's like, oh, you know, I just don't have the budget, and you go like, no, you know, you can do this. There are apps out there. I mean, we 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 help you know, with the work at Dartfish, and we've got that app, the Dartfish Note app. You can go chart matches yourself, and it doesn't cost you. It's not going to cost you a whole lot. It, it costs you in time. Mm. Okay, that's uh, uh, that's the number one thing. It, it, it does say time, but even if you sit if you're sitting watching the match, you can get that information. Um, it's just that it's it's um, it's, uh, it's ironic is that, you know, we, we in the tennis, in the teaching industry, you know, we, we expect that our students need to make change. You know, it's always that change equals pain. And we go out there and like Vicky used to even say, you know, it takes so many hours to develop a new motor skill and all that. So we, we demand this of our kids. We, we, we go out on the court and we say, you, in order for you to become better at at your at your skill and all that, you need to make change. You just change a group. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. But coaches are very reluctant to apply that same philosophy in their professional development. They go like, no, well, yeah, change change is pain. It's too painful. So I'm just not going to change. I'm just going to keep doing this, doing things the way I've always done. Um, so we 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 see that a lot. You know, you know also is that. It's just too difficult for the, for for a coach to make. Uh, it's, it's easy to make excuses, and uh, and and budget budget to me is 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 one of the excuses. You don't have to get full level professional analytics, but you need to. But you should be doing it. and the analytics, like you just said, Steve, it's, it's the analytics, the numbers that should be driving the practice course, not the other way around. 
Um, but hey, it's, it's getting better. You, you know, you're getting more and more coaches that are, um, you know, when you start seeing successful teams, you know, when um, the, the top teams, um, you know, use it. Um, and and again, you, you'll, you'll get coaches who will say, oh, well, it's like, you know, those successful teams, you know, they uh, they can use it. They, they can afford to use it. And you're going, you have to, they have the budget and all that. But you also have to tell them to say, well, you know, they it's because they started using it that they became successful. Yeah, they had to, at some point, they had to make that, that decision to say, hey, you know, we're going to change, change the way we're doing things. And, um, and, and it's difficult. You know, it's, it's, it's like even on that goal setting, you know, all these coaches are pretty much in that, in, in, in that whole thing of saying, oh, we need to give it, have these player development profiles. So we're going to do goal setting. And we all know it's like, hey, there's, you better have short term goals, medium term goals, long term goals. So they come up with this, with, for the kids, they'll say to them, okay, um, a good goal, you need to, you know, tell me what your goals are. It must be, Realistic must be realistic and attainable is one of the tenets of a, of, a, of goal setting. And another important one is must be measurable. So they go through this whole exercise with their with their kids with goal setting, but then they fail to measure their kids' performance. And kids are judged on outcomes, you know, outcomes. At the moment, it's like if you, your rating goes up or your ranking goes up. And you're you're winning more than you're losing, then you must be improving. Good, you know, good job. But if your if your ranking drops, or you have a few losses, you know the 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 inverse is, is, is or the converse is is, is 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 then you know should be true. And we know that that's not the case. You can you can lose a few matches, and you can still be improving. Your ranking can be going down, and you can still be improving. Mm. So how do you measure that pathway? And at the moment, that player development pathway from 12 to 14, 16 to 18 is always judged on on wins and losses, rankings and ratings. And there's a much better way to do it. There's a much more accurate way. And that goes back to the, the talent ID that we've been used for Tennis Canada. It is based on performance, not on outcome. And performance, there are lots of different metrics that you can benchmark. You can say, hey, at a, what's the difference between a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old when it comes to serve, you know, serve percentages? You serve win percentages and placements. What are the best kids doing? How is that different from what a 14-year-old is doing? Is the difference between for the girls and the boys? Um, what about the forehand? What about the rally length? What about, you can ask all these questions, but you have to have that, that data. And the benchmarking data is there. Benchmarking is great. Uh, only works if you are accurately measuring what your own player is doing. Because then you can benchmark. Then you can tell your kid. You can say, okay, yeah, you know, you're above the line, on the line, um, or below the line. And if you're below the line, then that's what we need to work on on that practice course. I always tell people to skip rope and jump rope whatever you call it, skip rope or jump rope. It doesn't cost that much. And, and either does a clipboard uh, from Bill Jacobson. We just take the balls hit three ways, plus minus IP point ends three ways, plus plus minus 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 F. Mm -hmm. And I'm you know, just make a, 
a T chart, a, a plus column and a minus column. And just when you're, you know, at a tournament with a group of uh, people you practice with, to say, hey, go chart 10 points on the serve, 10 points on the return. Uh, we've talked quite a bit on the podcast about the late uh, Jim Verdick, the only person I know who all the time, all the time, if he was watching tennis on TV, he would chart the points. And yeah. um, I think there's two types of talk. There's at a tournament or even watching tennis on TV, sometimes even the commentators, there's bleacher talk and fact-finding information. And, you know, what is really going on? And I do think that um, the tennis audience, and it's not to beat up on any of the commentators, but, and granted, it's only two people. It's not like a soccer game or a football game. And I know you comment on this where there's so many people on the court, like what just happened with that football play? Uh, what just happened with one uh, one group versus the other group playing soccer. But um, yeah, I think that uh, there should be definitely more charting. Yeah. And, and, and just to add to that is that, you know, you, you, you'll be very careful about um, back in the day and all, all of us were, were charting, you know, charting matches and that, but you got to be very careful about viewing match stats in isolation, you know, because you can, you can be sitting charting and you chart a really good match on one day. And then you don't chart them the next day, and they play a bad match. Um, you need to you need to be able to aggregate data. So, so that's that's what is uh, that is a big evolution, if you will. The next next with a big jump in 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 analytics in all sports was the ability to aggregate. Um, which when 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 Bill Jacobson, who is another South African, um, but when he kind of designed tennis, you know, it was it was it didn't have the power. The, the the charting and the template that he used is very powerful, but it didn't have the he didn't have the ability then to easily um, aggregate data over time, and then because at the moment the, the tools we've got, I mean, we're using, you know, we chart the matches, and and our our actual charting system is pretty much is very similar to to to, to what tennis was was doing. We, we have all these metrics, all these errors that we're charting, but that all gets put onto a SQL database. I didn't have that then. So it gets up, a, a person charts it and, then, and it gets uploaded. At the same time, that match gets, the video gets uploaded and it's got the same tags on it. So that's, and then the two of them are linked. So we've got a SQL database and we link the, the data to the, the, the stats to the video. And we have then we now we have the the the, the added you know tool or the power of you know, having a data visualization tool, which we use. There's, there's a bunch of them. There's Click, Tableau, Domo. There's, uh, Microsoft has, has has Power BI. We, we we use a couple of them, and they sit on top of everything. And then it allows the coach to or us to sit and drill down, basically do what if, what about this, what about that. I want to go take a look at. Um, all of Zavera's um, serves on um, when he was behind an account from four games all against the six foot eight lefty, mm-hmm. and you can you, then you can pull that data up and you can look at it because the ability to search or drill down in data allows you to um, to identify tendencies. And that's what when you when you uh, when you're only viewing uh, when you're charting matches in, in isolation, those stats are very valuable, but only right then and there. 
this is what you did well, this is what you did well or badly to win or lose on that day. But when you take 50 matches or 20 matches in that and you aggregate the data, and then you say, hey, do you realize that the, you, on a 30 all point, you always serve, you always miss your first serve, and you, whenever you serve a second serve, you serve it to the same position. Do you know that yes, your win percentage on a 30 all point is much lower than any other point score? But you, but you, you, you that's very powerful because then you can, you, you know, you can, you can try to figure out what it is. Is it something technique? Is it something to do with confidence and mental toughness? Um, is it happening at four all in a match where does it happen more at a certain stage in a match? Is it got to do with endurance? So there's a lot of things that tendencies allow us to, to, um, you know, find out about our players. And it is, it's also those tendencies again that are really, really important when we do oppositional scouting. So oppositional scouting, you know, you, you, you can, you can think, you can, you can say to um, a player, like, you know, I've been doing some additional work with Brandon Nakashima. Um, we, 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 we worked with them where they want to match the, the opponent from the previous round. And, um, and, and not, not, not Brandon, but, but I'm just saying some coaches will say, Hey, I just want to take a look at the match from the previous round. And there's a danger in that because you can come to the wrong conclusions because that may have been a great day for that player. And also he's playing against a different player. So you come up with all these, you cannot get accurate tendencies by looking at just the previous round. So when we've got a database now, which, which, you know, Bill Jacobson didn't have the luxury of having, we have the ability then to say, let's go look at that opponent. And, you know, you're playing so-and-so um, in, your, in your next round. And we've got the last 10 matches with, you know, 10 matches on hard court against right-handers, against, you know, with, uh, similar opponents. And now you, you aggregate and you pull up a report. And then you start finding some very interesting things. Because we know that, like, like baseball is, you know, found out. I mean, is that under moments of stress, you know, people, people become very predictable. Just nature. They're going to go with that, or, or, generally, they're going to go with what is comfortable for them in their situation, whether they realize it or not. And that's why I think that this, uh, the whole, the whole idea, I had to bring up the whole thing of saying that aggregation of data is where the power of analytics it lies, not just charting, and certainly charting a match, you know, charting a match is better than not charting it at all. With Bill Jacobson, uh, he's 85 years old, what a gentleman, like yourself, and intellectual. He, um, I used Computense for 17 years, I believe it was 82, 83, and then Y2K, um, didn't, didn't really, after 2000, it really dropped off, but uh, when Bill had his CT120, it was, I think, $3,500. The price never went down. And I believe that he sold less than 200 units. And then he developed a software package where people could chart on paper. Actually, we had uh, yeah. Carlos Goffey on, and he came up with uh, the red light, yellow light, green light points. Yeah. And I think it was 1,100, 1,100 people bought the software package. And the only reason I mention that, again, I come across so many times the doom and gloom. The, I think when you're honest, it just sounds like negative. It's, it sounds almost rebellious. But uh, people have to, one, just be interested in charting. Um, I think that years ago in America, uh, when baseball was bigger, it's not as big as it once was. 
um, you know, that, that mentality of baseball, um, people just knew stats, you know, the term be managed by stats, not by score. I, I mean, I have told tennis parents, I hear them tell a story. It's, it's like the fish gets bigger and bigger. I, I caught a four foot, four foot fish, but I've, like my child double faulted 19 times and they're just telling the story, but they didn't chart it. You know, they're just, they're just pulling the number out of the sky. And they're kind of beating their kid up. You know, well, I think you think you double faulted 21 times. The next time they tell the story, it's 22. But, you know, that, that expression, just the facts, Jack. Um, coming back to Jake's, and um, I'm not going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you what I know. You know, this is, yeah. this is what happened. You know, it's really interesting. Yeah, that that when you interview a player after the match, Jacobson would do that, is, you know, you ask them what happened. And of course, now and today we hear a lot of sound bites, but do the, do the players and do the coaches of the players really have an idea on what happened when the match is over? Yeah, I, I mean, at least at the pro level, you, you know, when we go to, uh, you know, when we're at Wimbledon and, uh, you know, we're at US Open and, and even at, at Australian Open, if you go in, all the coaches have got access to to all the stats and, you know, pretty in-depth. It's, it's pretty amazing at the uh, you know, at the pro level, what coaches have got access to to right now, but the average, um, you know, twelve year old, fourteen year old, fifteen year old, or even college coaches don't have access to that um, that information. Um, sometimes, also, you know, the, the whole thing is that um, the interpretation of the data, you know, for a coach becomes, you know, becomes an art. It's a coaching skill because you've got to be you've got to be very careful when you. Um, you're not just going to pull up all the stats and, and, and give it to your player. You know, you, you, that analysis paralysis is, is very real. So depending on your, and it goes back to what, what, um, what, what Vic used to do with um, even Nina, you know, with brain typing and that is saying, or even, you know, Myers-Briggs personality testing is going, you know, different, different personality types handle that, like, uh, will become, it, it, uh, stats and all that will become much more daunting. You know, when, when we're at, when I was at Wimbledon and um, working with Milos, you know, he he wanted to sit down and, and look at all the stats. It was, it was in his, it's in his genetic makeup that he's not going to have analysis paralysis. He wants to know. Um, the other players, you're not going to do, you know, you don't want to, you want to do that guided discovery and maybe first look at the stats and then filter certain, you know, things to them. So it, it goes back to the whole thing that the coach, you know, uh, or the team has got to, it's got to become the new art in coach is, you know, how to interpret data. And there's also, da- you know, a, a big, very big danger when you've got all these numbers to, to be selective about what you look at. Because you, you can look at the, at the data and something jumps out at you and that's all you look at. Or you fixate on, um, it, it can be very dangerous. So I think that that this, the new coaches are going to look at the whole picture, look at all the all the stats. One of the best stories I believe I heard this from you. I like to keep track of uh, where I learned something. I think if you make it a story, this is who taught me this. This is when and where. Um, instead of pretending that it's your own, but Milos Raonic was playing in Spain. He's playing futures and he's banging serves, and he was told, "Hey kid, you're not here to bang serves. Just to, just spin the serve in." And 
you know, work on your defense, work on your, your, your play from the backcourt. Um, I think also knowing stats with drills, like say, for example, you, okay, just you play four off the serve, like four and four, serve, serve four, return four, and just, just keep your own score. If you win a point at the net, it's plus three. And if you um, win a point at the baseline, it's plus one. Then of course, you just go plus three. You flip it around. If you're at the net, um, you get more points. So just try to do something to encourage people to go forward. I wanted to ask you about um, Craig O'Shaughnessy and the brain game. But before that, mm-hmm. to, go, to go way back to the beginning, um, you know, like say first four shots, I think really the, the beginning analytics are the numbers that apply to grip swing body. You know, this is sure. this is the angle the racket face. This is the angle the racket path. This is the distance how far the racket is away from your body. This is how far the racket fell, and uh, oh. because once you have those those numbers in place, it's like all these these greats that we talk about, like Welby Van Horn. He was asked um, numerous times. I heard Welby somebody would say, "Will you talk to us about strategy?" And he would just go, "No." Um, you know, it could be an adult at one of his tennis camps. And he said, I'm not going to talk to you about strategy until you have strokes. Um, yeah. And, you know, granted, uh, you know, I think Brad Gilbert, um, I, I love to listen to Gilbert. And, you know, you, you get to a certain point when you're someone like Gilbert, who is once quoted saying, I don't, I don't do grips, you know, and he's working with players that are on the tour. And, and you know, I think that's a whole different side of it. But with, could you comment on the beginning players with uh, – and I know you've already touched upon it a little yeah. bit, but how important that is as far as having oh, sure. having options. If a kid doesn't have the right grips, I mean, they're not going to be able to play doubles. They're not going to be able to go to the net. Yeah, at at, at some point, at, at some point, no matter how good a player gets, at some point, poor technique or inefficiency in technique is going to come back and haunt them. And it's either going to be lucky. It's going to be if they're lucky. It's just going to be that they that they lose. Or it's going to come back and it's going to haunt them by you know because of injury. So good technique and and strategy are intimately linked. Um, good technique, good technique enables you to execute strategy, no doubt about it. Okay. Um, technique, though, we 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 know in, in in player development. I mean, we all know in motor learning and that 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 technique has got to be pretty sound by the time you're fourteen. Sort of, so fourteen is, is, and it's not saying you cannot. Learn technique later on. We feel with players all the time. We, we we did. I did all the filming with Novak when he when he changed his serve. So players change it. Tiger Woods changed his swing um, when they number one. When they number one in the world, okay. Um, but it's very difficult. The easiest time is to because and we don't have to get into all of this. Is that building myelin and all of that, which is which I know you 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 know a lot about. Um, Happens very in early on when the, when the hard drive when the or the computer program is still fairly empty, it's easier to program, and that happens in the twelve to twelve to fourteen year stage. You work with strategy; the emphasis on strategy is less then than it than it becomes later on. There's a switch from the twelve to fourteen to um, the, the emphasis on, on on development is on technique in the early ages. And then it switches to strategy um, later on. But again, it's like when you're in 16s and 18s, you, you shouldn't be working a whole lot on technique. Maybe you're just working on minor tweaks on that in an ideal world. 
but you be, uh, but but yeah, you've got to have that that uh, that foundation has got to be sound very very early on, and we we see this now in in analytics. You know, we'll break down a match, and you can go back and you can say that um, what was it that caused this player to to lose? And you know, very rare, almost always, you can you can back it, you know, backtrack, and you can say it's either because there's an um, there's poor strategy, which at the top levels there's um, there's um, there's usually uh, not. Okay, it's less the case. But at the top levels, you can always go back and you can look in the matchup and you can look at it and, and look at technique. And you can say, okay, yeah, this guy, uh, this guy has a really you know weird looking forehand and he takes back and all of that and he hits he may hit with tremendous spin he may be he may be you know getting um, showing players something that they've never looked at but pretty much it's like a comet or it's like a meteor okay they very short lived and then either the player gets injured or other players start reading it and just go like hey it's like you know there's there's an inefficiency here. And then they start exploiting it. And that's one of the things also when we're doing oppositional scouting is you'll back it and you'll say, why? You'll back it out and say, you know, if a player's, if a player's losing, it's usually because of inefficiencies in technique or it could be something like I said in mental toughness and confidence. It could be in um, movement or it could be in endurance. Um, and, and it's not always just one, one or the other. It's usually a combination. But... Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's like if I look at what I've learned, you know, from the analytics side now, I'd be going, and I was, a, you know, counseling a parent, I'd be going like, make sure that whoever your kid is taking lessons lessons from early on in the 12 and 14 knows how to teach technique and doesn't do what, uh, and doesn't teach them a palm up serve like, like I have. Because it's a limiting factor, and it will haunt you at some point. Well, I've heard you say before that, uh, not in naming any academies, but you, when you were um, primarily just selling dartfish or um, managing dartfish in the tennis world, that you'd go from one academy to the next, and you felt like telling kids, "Put your rackets in your shoulder bag and run away as fast as you can," because you, yeah, you just, I want to say, I want to say that the quicker, the best way for you to improve is to. Uh, is to put your racket in your bag and run. Yeah. <laughs> Just run the other way. Um, go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, I think it's so interesting talking about, you know, again, um, you know, te- technique and strategy and when these moments of emphasis are. I, I think if you then add the physical side to it, if, uh, if a player is, say, winning uh, based on their ability to, to keep a lot of balls in the court and they're not forcing... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like Malcolm Gladwell and the outliers, how the the last yeah. nine, nine out of ten record holders in the 100-meter sprint in the Olympics were the youngest in birth order. And I think a player who just has no options in terms of being offensive, whether it's their technique or or their coach who's maybe pushing them to win rather than develop, they'll actually have uh, have issues with not having the, the strength um, – in the in the legs or the trunk, uh, say that the the fast twitch muscles and the ability to, to hit the ball with enough RPMs or power to play at the next level, and so that's I think another interesting twist on on all this. But uh, but like you said, you have to have the data 
to figure this stuff out. And I think that comes back to, you had mentioned the cultural side of the sport. Um, and I think also the financial side of the sport, it comes back to, you know, where we're at, uh, as, as a sport culturally and, um, as players are developing, uh, uh, as juniors, that's when the coaches are wa- are watching their matches the least. Um, you know, at least the college coaches are are paid to be there, um, and the pro coaches say at the futures level. Of course, there's probably not many players at the futures level or challengers level who can afford a full time coach. Um, no. And then the pro level, you know, once you get to the ATP WTA tour, well, those guys have already pretty much made it, and so you know, what are we going to do? Uh, to help junior coaches, you know, ha- have the ability to get out there and get hard data, hard stats on junior players. Um, I mean, that's those are my thoughts. I'm mean, kind of rambling a little bit, but what are your thoughts on on kind of that side of it, just to where we are as a sport, um, and maybe the financial side of of all that? Yeah, there's there's. There's no doubt I mean, that uh, that it is still you know it's, it's the barriers to entry um, you know are pretty high in tennis. So it's, it's, it's an expensive sport. So you know a lot, and, and then again you also face the fact that a lot of the best athletes then one is because they don't have the money. You know they they gravitate towards some of the other team sports, basketball. So we're dealing with that also. I, I think also that is that. Um, the other issue that we've got, and I think it's probably more pronounced in tennis, is, is the internet. You know, you know, one is kids kids spending having having too much time on their, uh, you know, spending too much time just you know, on the internet. But also, when it's when it relates to tennis, just seeing all this, all the the, the information, the video, um, the, the the fake news, if you will, in uh, that is out there. So a lot of these kids and even parents. You know, go on and they say, you know, they look at what what the world what is available on, you know, YouTube and all that, and they see these, you know, sometimes pretty pretty well known coaches, um, and or they see um, professionally made content. It looks very very good, and if the mm-hmm. content is is professionally made, or if this guy's got a name, um, you know, that it must be true. So then they 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 looking at that as gospel. And then taking that out onto the court with their kids, and we all know is like you know the um, there's a lot of like a lot of people who become experts overnight um, because of the internet. So my 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 big thing is just to say hey, be be very careful about um, about trusting trusting everything that you that you watch um, online, especially when it comes to technique. Um, one thing with, uh, you know, just analytics, this study of, uh, certainly a statistical analysis from a match, but just in hearing your story for our listeners. So you, you grow up playing soccer in your younger years, you spent hours and hours on the backboard and you grew up in a time, if you did have private lessons, it was just that you weren't programmed out and you tried to play as many matches as possible. So being from South yeah. Africa, there's a lot of sunshine. You know, I think people people from Johannesburg, I know enough people that way back in the day, the altitude is high and should have wore more sunscreen. But today I was on the 
Today I was on the court with two Canadian boys, one from Montreal and one from Toronto, a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old. 16-year-old hits the ball really well. He's been taught by, um, he's been in what we call a system, a system of systems uh, from the get-go, from when he started, he plays really well. But I just told these two guys, I said, let me tell you how it works. Um, being in Canada, it's a long, long winter. So many times you're on the court with six players. And a lot of times these kids at indoor indoor programs, they'd be better off to do, okay, do some work with the program, but just rent courts really late at night and play sets. So what I was doing, because they're just blasting balls, um, of course, we had a Russian coach add to the drill. I said, all right, guys, this, this is going to be like a basketball score. Every time there's an unforced error, the game's over. Like you just lose the game. Even if you're ahead 40-11, but you make the unforced error. And not to have these guys push, but just realize, guys, in football, if it's a fumble, it's a turnover. Everybody in the stadium knows, uh-oh. And these kids are just blasting balls. I think that's one thing, too, is if someone's taking lessons where the coach, and this was the way it was in Europe for years, is the coach just had six balls. But if a coach is out there with 300 balls, people don't think anything of making a mistake. So I had these boys playing, and they were basically missing backcourt to backcourt. And they, they just, I mean, it's, the score is going to go up quite high. The, the games are going to fall fast. But actually, then the, the Russian coach I work with said, okay, after every unforced error, you got to do 10 squat thrusts. Just, just to get people stop and think. Because um, when you make an unforced error, I mean, I tell people you got to win two to be in the positive. And it's, it's really just many times, as Braden would say, it's just a comedy of errors, you know, backcourt error after backcourt error. But in leading into that, uh, Tell us a little bit about Craig O'Shaughnessy. Um, I remember Dave Fish talking to me about him when he was really young, that he has techie skills and he's a, a very good writer. Um, I know recently he had uh, an article, I think it was called The Big Lie, where people don't go to the net. Uh, could you elaborate yeah. on that and how you work with Craig yeah, so, and, and that background? Yeah, so, so I've worked with Craig for a long time. I mean, we, we, we actually, you know, we have a couple of, you know, you know on the, he has brain games, tennis.com. And we actually have a couple of joint prod, uh, products, uh, data products um, that you know use my data, and we break them down. And um, one of them is one million points in college tennis, which we launched a couple of years ago, a year or so ago. And then the other one was just called Game Plan. But I've worked with Craig over the, over the years, and you know he's still uh, he's a client of mine. Uh, he's a he's a great friend of mine, and he's and he's also a client and. You know, with all the players he works with, I mean, we do the charting and give him the data, which he then interprets. So he's very good at that, and he's very good at writing. Um, so, so him and I had had similar backgrounds growing up, and um, so it's always good to to um, you know work with him quite 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 closely on a, you know a lot of a lot of this data stuff. Um, what is your question again? So, sorry, Steve, you you asked about. Oh, about um, about the uh, about the net. Yeah, yeah. He 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 looked at the net and all that, and was going like um, um, he looked at all the, the the actual numbers and the winning percentage. But he's looking at it as a pro. So what we what I've done is I've done this the same thing. You know, we we actually just I just did a a study. I did a presentation for the USPTA um, a week ago, and what I did was I took all the data from Orange Bowl. So this was the um, the 12 through the 18. And on net appearance, I'm just going to bring it up over here. On net appearance, even the loser 
wins more points uh, than they um, wins more points when they go to the net than they lose. So, so what I started doing is, is, is instead of looking at the averages, all the stats that you see when you're doing benchmarks is on a- average. That takes the winners' numbers and the losers' numbers and divides them by two. So what we started looking was saying, wait a minute, I don't want to look at it like that. I want to look at what is it that the match winner does. So I come up with a database of the match winner's stats, and I come up with a database of the match loser's stats. So in every match, so there's 127 matches in the, in the draw, and there's 127 winners, and there's 127 losers. So I'll segment that, that data. And it was interesting, you know, when, when we looked at that, you know, the, the winners obviously win more than the losers. But the, on, on average, it's about, in the boys, it's about 60% of the time that they go, the average, okay, so 60% of the time that they go with the net, they're going to win. Um, a lot of it is freebies because they go to the net and the ball doesn't even come back. They don't even have to hit a barley. Um, the match loser is, you know, for the boys 12, they broke even. Boys 14, 50, they win 53% of all net appearances. Boys 16, 59%. Boys 18 in, at the Orange Bowl, 55%. Even with the girls, 53, 53, 55 for the match, match losers. But... On, on average, when I tell you, when you just look at an average of all of them, you, you can roughly say, you know, you win two out of every three net, three points when you go to the net. Um, so you, you'd be going like, why? Um, that's a very, very powerful step. Um, so you're going like, you need to learn, um, you need, you need to go to the net. And a lot of players, unfortunately, they don't go to the net when they're younger because they're worried about getting passed. And so what they do is they, they, their coaches will say, don't worry, you know, when you're 14 or 15, you can start going to the net. But let's just go in the lesson. They feed them a canned approach shot. The kid is a nice uh, slice backhand down the line. And then they go to the net and they hit that textbook volley, you know, everything done. And you say, that's not, what, that's not what's happening in a match. In a match, your opponent is trying to hit the ball away from you. He's trying to hit the ball at your feet. He's trying to hit the ball at your head. Um, you you need to learn how to volley those, and the, uh, and well, when you're in a lesson, your, your coach is not going to be firing balls at your at your body. Um, what they're going to do is it's going to be very controlled. So the way you get better um, coming to the net is to do it when you're younger, because you get to you you get to you get past and you learn from it, and you get those low volleys, you get those those. You know, it's very rare that players hit that textbook volley. Um, you're just stabbing at the ball and all of that, but that, but yes, it's important to work on the technique for sure. I'm not saying don't don't do that, but you need to go to the net when you're 12 years old. Because going to the net when you're 12 years old makes you better when you're 14, makes you better when you're 16, makes you better when you're 18. Yeah, we so, always say we always yeah. Say the, that. the numbers are you know, numbers overwhelming in favor of going to the net. We always say the person at the 12 and unders, um, the one who hits the most overheads is doing the best. I know Jose Garris, uh, the famous player from Spain, top 10 in the world, has done so much with the UCA. I'm sure you've spent hours and hours with him. I work uh, with him. I've done a lot of work with Jose, yeah. With that, uh, what he says about the 12s is somebody's got to win. It's just, um, <laughs> you know, parents shouldn't be climbing the fence. Um, you know, in the sport I grew up, if you're 12, you're playing peewees. I mean, and I think the division before that is squirt. 
So it's not high performance. With um, yeah. Craig O'Shaughnessy, uh, he's like yourself, a great speaker. Uh, I have to plug Vic Braden here again. Is um, you know, when you've been in the game such a long time, you're like one phone call away from talking to anybody. So uh, Kim Wittenberg, you know, we we met years ago working for All American Sports. We talked to uh, Chuck Creasy. I mean, he'd be a little bit older than I am. A couple years he started with All American Sports. So then through Kim, I I coached his younger brother Scott. Now, Scott and Craig were college teammates, and the Braden influence, I mean, Dustin Brown, uh, a little loosey-goosey with uh, some of his mechanics, but um, I remember Craig was at uh, Wimbledon with with Scott, and that's where uh, Dustin Brown beat Rafa. Played Nadal. Beat yeah, he played, played Nadal. Nadal, and, you know, one thing, um, uh, Jason Jung was here the other day to say hello, and he played at Michigan, and, and I think he's cracked... Uh, we're pretty close to having been top hundred in the world and uh, Michigan grad. So top school. And we're talking about Max Cressy and mm. how much he's going to net. And I said, it's kind of sad that everybody's just talking about it because it's like a freak of nature. And I, I know he, he spent time with Matt Clore and Andy Fitzell. He spent time at, at the place I had him in Orlando. And, and, and Jason said, yeah, but he's got a big serve. And I just said, I wish he didn't say that. Of course he's got a big serve. But the thing is, is that, uh, you just got to understand the court's 27 feet wide, 130 degrees potential mm-hmm. angle. You know, the the language from Jacobson, the aggressive air margin, if you win two out of three, four out of six, eight out of 12. But it, it's just amazing. Granted, kids at a younger age, they go to net to lose at a faster faster rate. But it's, you know, all the way to the big time. And now, I mean, it's just amazing where people are not even serving volume in doubles. Could you comment on that? I mean, in charting too, I think that's where um, doubles is... I mean, forget it. I mean, people aren't charting doubles. Not not at the grassroots. Yeah, we 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 chart a lot of doubles. Okay, and, and in fact, m- m- most recently, I mean, we 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 also chart. You know, we do all the scouting, even for doubles. It's become, um, you know, it's, it's it's much more important for when during the Olympics and the, and, and and even last weekend. I mean, we we chart a lot of doubles for the Davis Cup. But and for college, it's very important. So we we chart. We chart double water, and yeah, it is shocking for me to to see um, players playing doubles and and on the serving team standing too left. It is shocking, and we see it. We see it. We, we see it all the time, and it's fine. You know, every now and again, if it, 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 we know it's like if the server's got a, a really big serve, that the returners will adopt that two back strategy, but. We even see it in the on the on the surf. So, so yeah, it goes back. It's for, for all of those kids. They don't know what they're missing out on. But the problem is, is that is that it's too difficult to change his pain again. It's it's too difficult for them to to change. And most college coaches, unlike Matt, you know, was where they're going to develop kids. You know, when they get there, most college coaches um, are just you know they want to get a kid who. They don't need to uh, develop. They want the kid to come out there, and if the kid is a, a baseliner, is not going to go to the net, then hey, that's what they're going to end up. They're going to start playing college like that, and that's how they're going to end it, uh, end playing. Um, but yeah, I, I would go, I always go back and, and and just say that you know the when when you're at college, it's well, it's not not like it's too late, but it would be much easier to fix. 
to address when they were younger, when they were 12, 13, 14. Um, but yeah, doubles is, and, and also like the, the other thing is that juniors should play more doubles because if they it don't just enter the singles tournament, doubles gives you an opportunity to work to, to work on your net game. So, but a lot of kids don't play doubles. So it's kind of like a, it's a catch-22. So. Yeah, returns too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, uh, can yeah. get the ball away from the net person. Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, no, uh, we talked to Chuck Creasy, and, and uh, I don't know how, if you if you know Chuck personally, but... Uh, yeah, I do know Chuck. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so he, he, uh, he was big on talking about how there's the changing of the scoring system in doubles, talking about no-ad scoring, mm-hmm. uh, six-game sets. And how the and even how that might trickle into professional doubles or, or what the no ad scoring obviously already has. Um, what, what's your what's your kind of take from a statistical standpoint uh, on no ad scoring in these shorter sets? And I've seen junior tournaments they're they're playing four game sets, and of course ten point tiebreakers almost now are are always always the case for in, in place of third sets for junior tennis. Could you talk a little bit about yeah, your, your yeah. experience with that? So, so obviously, I'm not a proponent for um, for, for shortening, you know, shortening everything. Like we also now get fast four and you know all of that, which is um, uh, which is it, it's sad that it gets to that. Like even in college, I mean, you know, you know, college, but you but you have to understand, you, you know, there's a much bigger picture. There's arguments on, on both sides. Statistically, you know, with the whole thing with no ad scoring and uh, you know, ad scoring and no ad. There's actually not another not significant difference in, in how the sets come out, whether they, whether they play it out, whether they serve a game out and play regular scoring, or if they play, um, or if they play no ad. I think that for everyone, uh, you know, it's a big point. And so you play that point, you know, arguably you're saying that you play the, that, that um, no ad point you know, with a lot more um, on both sides of the court, you play with a lot more intensity than what you would play at two school because you don't have another option. So, um, I, I I need to actually revisit that because we, we we did that a couple of years ago. We, we did a study on college tennis just to see um, if the the deciding point, the three or point, if it's favoured. Um, the server or the returner, compared to if the, you know compared to a regular regular scoring, we didn't find that there was any anything specifically significant in the difference. Mm. The server had the upper hand. I spent uh, I'm spent a lot of time what's called the Battle of Boca Boca Raton UTR Money Tournament, and this past weekend, one of the players were coaching. He won the first game in his mind because he thought they were playing no ad, but they were playing ad. And they're playing ad, you know, regular scoring in the the main draw, not the not the consolation bracket. So then what happened is they they yelled over to the referee and they played a very long game, the first game. And this young player that we're working with, he totally revealed himself because it went do sad, do sad. And I think sometimes the the ego is so fragile and people start off a match. So he had you know, the Nick Bollettieri thing. If he'd walked, our player had walked around the net post and he was up one love, but it went do sad, do sad. And I said, by that, by that game was so long, you know, it lasted like 15 to 18 minutes. 
And I said, you just told the guy all about yourself. Going back to Lynette Federer, you showed a chink in your armor. You know, he just showed that he was just emotionally capable of unraveling. But I do think that the shorter the scoring system, for sure, the greater chance for an upset. And, you know, Chuck really preaches uh, is to, you know, the fitness. Obviously, he's a fitness maniac, which is a positive. But I loved what he said about if you're going to play the 10-point the tiebreaker, play it for the first set. And so then the third set is a true set. My, my son Connor's yeah. playing a match for Ty Tucker, Ohio State, and he got down. He won the first set. He got down like four, four one, and he just started intentionally losing. And then Ty comes over. What are you doing? He goes, "I am not playing a ten point tiebreaker. I'm going to lose this set and win this thing in three. Um, it's, I think it's so sad that uh, you work on fitness all the time, and and I think it's because we're lazy. I think that we're going home early. I mean, wh- why do we have to play a ten point uh, tiebreaker? But that that's unfortunate. The the government yeah. the government who ma- who who makes those decisions? Um, it's just sad. Yeah, I think that goes all the way up. That's, you know, it's ITF. I mean, that's, um, well, we're, we're not in college tennis. In, in, in college tennis, obviously, the NCAA is uh, they they make those those rules with direction from uh, the intercollegiate tennis association. Coming back to Chuck, though, I think it was for 15 years um, where they played no ad in college tennis, but the college coaches were okay with that because they could play as many matches as they wanted. They weren't they weren't limited to, yeah. to 25 days, so that's another thing too. And, but again, a lot of the rules uh, obviously are positive for the the student athlete, the academic side. So there was too many coaches years ago that said, "Just get C's and get your degree." Um, we're not too interested in the academic side. With, um, yeah. go ahead, Brandon. No, uh, go ahead, Steve. Um, I, well, I could do this. Um, the, the language uh, of charting, uh, um, I understand first two touches, first four shots, serve plus one. But could you comment on this? For me, when you have these, you know, players in their formative years, they're, they're playing, they're 10 years old, and they hear serve plus one, for example. And they're arching their back, they're tossing the ball over their head, they're hitting what they think is an effective serve because the trajectory makes the ball bounce high. They're later obviously going to have no speed on their serve, but in 10 and 12s, it doesn't really matter. And then they're running around and just everything's a forehand. So I, I think sometimes the, the language of charting, we, you know, when you hear what the pros are doing, obviously serve and return is huge. But we know that little kid tennis and big kid tennis are two different sports. I mean, for little kid tennis, the serve, although you want to teach the best possible mechanics, Mm -hmm. so they eventually have a great serve, but it's just a point starter. But, um, no, so when when kids hear, you know, first four shots and they're just playing home run derby and I quote Chris Clore all the time, they're just trying to launch missiles. Could you you comment on that and how uh, sometimes what we hear about pro tennis shouldn't be applied to little kid tennis? Yeah, I think at, at 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 all levels. I mean, even the technical side. You know, we still do the do the work. We do the the, the technical assessments or the the side by side comparisons with the, you know the kids that's going to the USTA national camps, comparing them to pros, and that. We, we still often do that. And yeah, sometimes on the tech on the technical side is that you know it's, it's, first of all it's, it's not it's not good to be have a twelve year old compared to a pro. There's there's too much missing in between from the from, uh, from the growth and the development the, the, the physical development perspective. 
So it's better for us, it would probably be better when we, when we create reference libraries. There's been a lot of debate about this, is to say that the ideal way would be to, to have a 12 year old compared to a really good 14 year old, and a really good 14 year old compared to a really good 16 year old. So on, on, on the technique side. Now, on the, you know, the terminology on the match analysis side and saying that, that, um, that, um, and can you still hear me? Because I think my headset just died. Yeah, yeah we can hear you. Okay, let, let me just, I'm going to switch over here. Um, well, if this dies, then I'll switch to my phone. Um, on the on the terminology, you know, obviously, I think everyone knows, surf plus one, return plus one, and all of that, just the, 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 the second shot after the return. And the, the whole thing, the question here was more about, like, saying, should a 12-year-old you know, be working on what the pros are working on, like a surplus one, the strength of the forehand and, you know, only hitting forehand. I think you're, you're going to be, be very careful, like I said earlier on, in, 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 in misinterpreting the data and getting, you know, confused about, like saying, um, uh, taking it as an, as an absolute, like, like, for example, the rally length. I think, you know, um, people early on when we were doing this, even in the juniors, you know, People would hop all over Craig and I about the, the, the first four shots, the importance of the first four shots. Because when people interpreted what the, you know the, 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 that the majority of rallies end within four shots, they how they you know, what they heard was that oh I should only work on my players uh, on, on 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 short rallies. I shouldn't worry about the long rallies. But that was never ever what was what was what was said. You know, because if you look at it, if you're good at a long rally, you're probably going to be good at a short rally. And that in the development stages, yes, you need to work on on um, you need to work on on those longer rallies because you develop stamina, you're developing movement, you're developing you know court skills. You you're doing all those things. But the fact is, it does. There are, there are some universal truths about the sport that 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 have to be acknowledged. And that is the one is that the sport is that we play a game of errors. There are three times as many errors as there are winners in all junior levels of tennis. It's slightly lower at the at, at the pros, but generally there's three winners to every error. Three, excuse me, three errors to every winner. Um, the other thing is that our sport is ruled by short rallies. The, the dominant rally length is one to four. It doesn't matter whether you're girls 12 on playing on clay or whether you're a pro. In fact, the better you get, the shorter the rallies are. But, but that doesn't say that all the important rallies happen on short points. We also, we, we, we did look at that and said, well, is it, you know, are some of the big points happening more on longer rallies than on shorter rallies? And there, there, was, there was no evidence to suggest that the important points happen at all rally lengths. So you do have to be good at at um, at all rally lengths. The the other thing is the, the other universal truth is that you know the winner of the match on average the winner of the match is winning you know fifty five fifty six percent of points. So it's an imperfect sport. So you're not going to win a hundred percent of all the points you, uh, you you play. The number one player in the world wins fifty three to fifty five percent of all points they play. So juniors growing up, you know, you need to look at that. You need to say, hey, you're going to make errors. That's how you handle the making errors or the losing points and all of that that will define you as a player. And going back to the surplus one, um, you know, the, 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 in our sport, it doesn't matter what the age is. 
the forehand is the is generally the weapon. The, the forehand is the strength over the backhand. That's how the numbers show it. As the player gets older, the forehand becomes more of a of a strength. I think you know Craig. The analogy Craig makes is that the forehand is the sword, and the backhand is the shield. Now again, that can be misinterpreted because a lot of coaches will go back to that first four shots and say, "Hey, you know what? As a twelve-year-old, I have got to. I have. Um, I've got to um, work on um, a player hitting a forehand every single first plus one." And if you look at that logically and you look at that from a, develop, a developmental point of view, you'd be saying all you're doing is you're you know, you probably making the backhand an even bigger weakness. So you don't, you don't make a weapon stronger and then your sword, you don't get a bigger sword and a, and a smaller shield. That doesn't make you a better player. You need, to, you need to work on them equally. But you do need to know, and we see this even at the girls 12 is that if we do look at where players are hitting winners or making you know hitting winners from they hit more winners on the forehand side than they hit on the backhand side you it's know, just I, it's just numbers a couple of things to follow up on that uh no i think the shield yeah. sword is a very good analogy but the shield being the backhand if you never hit a backhand you don't you're not going to have a shield i mean if you just you've got to you got to work both on strengths and weaknesses Another thing, I think, sure. you know, through your research and O'Shaughnessy's writing, um, I share with people all the time that for 10 years, I believe this is accurate, for 10 years, uh, you know, Federer and Nadal, they show up at the US Open, so they played eight months on the circuit, and they're, they were always at 55, like 55.2, 55.3. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, don't, I think that, the, the, you know, Joe Public uh, thinks that, you know, Nadal and Federer, Djokovic, that they're just rolling people they're just winning so easily but i like how you say universal truths and imperfect game but a question on equipment you know we mentioned uh the connection with o'shaughnessy and the the wittenberg boys uh they both work for Braden, and i remember uh you had an ad when you were with dartfish uh uh hi vic Braden would be in a room with 100 people and they were all there to listen to him and vic would you know he'd come in and go hi i'm vic but he had an ad that you put together hi i'm vic i dartfish but I remember you complimenting and saying, "Yeah, Braden's Braden was basically doing thirty years ago what what we're doing today." But with the equipment, yeah. uh, you know, kids are not playing with a wooden racket. Um, but what's your thought on when you hear pros say, "Well, because of the equipment, because of the strings," I mean, you know, I've heard the Fed say, "Well, everybody really fears the low backhand or the low for, the low volley backhand or forehand." But what's your thought on you know the equipment's changed so much that the games evolved where you you know you can't go to the net. Um, I mean, you think uh, there's some truth to that, that someone has to really, really mix it up more where you you can't be a pure servant volleyer? I, I, I think, I mean, if, you, if we even even take the, you know, if we look at, at, at even like say t- 10 years ago when the, when, when the debate started and all that about net play and all that, um, First, though, just to backtrack, is, is, is there's no doubt that the that the equipment that the modern equipment has, has has changed the game more so for the junior player and for the and for the recreational player. But if you do look at the weighting of the pros and all that, I mean, the the racket Stefan Edberg was playing with, you know, the the, the pro staff, the, the six point one, is is fairly similar to to what uh, what they're playing with now. Now, before that, with a wood racket. 
between, like, say, if it was a racket at Edinburgh, and even I, th- I think McEnroe was at, was at one of one of those players where he went through the his career. He he saw the greatest change in in um, in, in equipment because he still he was playing with wood rackets with a max fly, and then and then at the end he was playing with a with a fairly modern racket with a with that also with a Dunlop. Um, so. Um, I definitely think it made it. It makes it easier for it makes it easier for, for kids to 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 do everything to, to serve. I mean, you name it. Um, but I think that the equipment, um, the evolution of the game, is not only because of the equipment. I think the evolution of the game is for a lot of reasons. I think that, um, and, and I think I mentioned this to you in a conversation once once before. Is you know we keep hearing about the evolution of the sports and the comparisons between Labour and, and Federer and um, you know we're, and we're going to have the next greatest player is going to be is going to come about now you're going to hear you know maybe it will be Medvedev or whoever and they, they're going to be comparisons made you know so who was the greatest ever it would be very sad if tennis stayed stagnant you when you want every generation of tennis players to be better than the previous one it happens in all sports I think that I I really believe, and and I may may be wrong. I may hear a lot about this, but I really believe that um, Rod Laver would be no match for Federer, even if they were playing with wood rackets. Because I think it's a different, it's a it's a different. He's an evolved. Federer has just evolved based on the foundation that Laver uh, that that Rod Laver and all of the greats um, provided. And I think that the same thing is going to happen in the future. That there's going to be another debate down the down the road, and it's going to be comparing someone to Djokovic or 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 Nadal. And again, it would be sad if um, if it was the case that uh, one of these players now would beat somebody would, would beat the player in ten years' time. It would be sad if the player that's number one in the world could get beaten by by Federer and Nadal or or, or Djokovic. They, each each um, each generation of players learns, hopefully learns from the previous generation, and that's something we see in, in other sports also. Just look at at sprinters. I think twenty years ago, um, who was it? Owens. It, it, um, he, he wouldn't even qualify for the Olympics now, based on, you know on his time that he won the Olympics with you know twenty years ago. Well, are you referring to uh, Jesse Owens in the, in the in Jesse Owens in, 30, yeah. in the uh, thirty-six? I think he was uh, yeah, running in Berlin, and Hitler was watching. But, yeah, uh, and, and and he's now wouldn't even wouldn't even have him qualify for the U.S. trials. He's winning time. No, and I, that's, yeah, no, I think that yeah. there's so many truths to that. But I mean, I don't like to get into the the goat, the greatest of all time. But I would say this: the tennis teachers of yesteryear are better than the current tennis teachers. That's just my, my take. On the, on the technical okay. side, sure. Yeah, because you've got like, you, you, you because of the equipment, I, I would agree. But, but, I, I would but, agree. With you you don't they, get away with Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you, 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 you don't, there, there was, um, you, you got away with far less. If, you, if you're not hitting a perfect volley, you're not hitting a good volley, or you're, uh, or if your technique was, with a with a wooden racket and a smaller sweet spot and all that, you don't have much um, margin for error. So I think it's, it's definitely made um, the uh, uh, on, on on that 
side, you know, with the with equipment, it definitely made the game uh, made the game easier. But I also think that that, that athletes became bigger, faster, stronger with this with this new equipment. It's just, yeah, no, it's the, just, the evolution of the racket. I mean, certainly, you know, the the surface as well, and not covering the grass after after the strings, rain, yeah. not covering the grass after the rain, and with. Um, I think on the forehand side, I mean, it was, you know, how many of us were taught one grip and had a continental roll? And with, uh, I know, like, say, Ivan Lendl, for example, you know, he said, of course the players are better today. And I do think that they're, they're certainly stronger. I don't necessarily think they're tougher because, you know, they're not playing three events and, you know, how they're, the kind of money they generate and such. Um, but I think Charlie Passarell, where he said, every champion has their day. Um, I always tell people go to go to YouTube. I actually told Rod Laver this at that time. I was just at an airport, and you know, usually I would leave the famous alone, but I was just exhausted from. I was, had done this clinic in El Paso, and I just walked by and a little punch drunk, and I go Rod Laver, and I just sit down, and I, I mean, I had slow motion of Rod Laver in my shoulder bag on DVDs, and I said, "Do you use YouTube?" Because he was so humble, he said, "I couldn't play with the players today," and I said, "Go to." YouTube. Oh, my nephew goes to YouTube. And I said, punch in Caesar's Palace, 19, 1975, Connors Labor. And I've talked about it before. Um, Connors wanted the tennis balls open three days before the match, two or three days, because he wanted it to be slower. Labor was semi-retired. But the level of tennis um, at that time, but players were playing doubles. Uh, players were playing on bad grass. Players were going forward. I think that you know, so many things today. Um, I think the, I think the coaches are less respected. I think that, you know, parents are over-involved and so many different factors. Yeah, it just happens to be, and he's a, everybody tells me he's a great kid. I know Scotty Perelman, who's on our podcast. We work with Braden together, talked about Sam Riffis or Sam Rifus. Uh, he just won, he, he just won the NCAs. And, you know, to me watching that, uh, there was a boy that we've worked with that he beat in the semis. And I'm, it's not just, did, so did, did, uh, no, uh, Liam Draxel. So, but, but, okay. but, but anyway, where, um, I'm thinking, you know, Connors, he, you know, the way he was playing in the seventies with his 75 mile an hour serve, uh, but the, how he went forward, I stayed close to the baseline. Um, you know, I like to ask kids today, uh, what's your mile time? And years ago, everybody knew what their mile time was. And, you know, granted, granted, we're in junior tennis. I do think at the very, the elite level, of course, you know, uh, you know, like what you started off with by saying with uh, uh, Federer versus Laver, um, yeah, the game has evolved to that level. But I really think at the lower levels, you know, even down to challengers and futures, college tennis, you know, Brandon used the word forcing that, in the sport I grew up in, everybody can fly on a pair of skates now. You know, best best teachers I ever had were figure skates. And like, say, my older brothers, they didn't work with figure skaters. They 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 were older than me where they didn't see videotape. But I, I really think that there's, uh, you know, certainly the serves, the forehands, the returns are better. But when it comes down to, you know, some of the uh, skills, especially from the service line in, um, yeah. yeah, I think there's a really plus minus column in, the, in that debate. Agreed. No, no doubt about it. No. Yeah, I think uh, the, the the physical side, what everything from down down to nutrition to training to how they schedule and periodize their their calendar, and um, 
like Steve was saying, the number of events that players used to have to play. Um, so you have to factor all that in for sure. I like the story about Ray Ruffles where he was playing with Garolitis at, uh, at Wimbledon and he thought the, the day was over because of rain. But so he was, he was on the grounds drinking a few beers with the boys, mother's milk for the Aussies. And, uh, they called him back and, uh, I can't remember exactly like if he was down two sets to love and he came back and he won the match, but, uh, he loosened up with a little few, be- a few beers in between. <laughs> um, I don't think the boys drink as many beers as they did back in the day. So what, what did Lombardi, Lombardi said, I'd rather have a whiskey drinker than a milk drinker. So, uh, you know, I think also too, the, the guys, I mean, you know, like yourself from some, from South Africa being from the, on the other side of the world that, uh, or the Aussies, you know, Shaughnessy's an Aussie where um, they learned to rough it more when they traveled. You know, so I think, you know, there's a lot to be said. So I do think there's a plus minus column, but uh I do think that's unfortunate that a lot of the tennis teachers, a lot of the tennis players today, I think that's great what, you know, um, Tony Gotsik, uh, agent of uh, Federer, what they put together with the Labor Cup where you get the older generation teaching the younger generation, then listen to what, you know, the Fed says is that, you know, the younger guys below us, the reason we're still winning is they don't come to the net. I mean, if people don't listen to Federer, I mean, but that, you know, I do think that people really need to dig deep because if they just listen to the courtside sound bites, they're not reading enough about the sport. They're not learning enough about the sport. Yeah, I agree. With, uh, I got to get this story in. Uh, you got another question, Brandon? I do. Yeah, go, 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 you go first. Well, this is to plug your new adopted hometown, a little commercial for Salt Lake. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Park City. Um, actually, we have these... Uh, Steve stories, uh, using my name in third person. And someone asked me, uh, you haven't done many of those, but, uh, I said, that's just because I'm really unorganized at the time, but I've got, I, they asked me if I ran out of stories. We had a mom here a few weeks ago and she said, she knows Richard Hernandez and Mira Mann, two coaches I've known forever. And she said, well, I'd like to get together and have you tell me some Richard and Miran stories. I said, and her first name's Lucy. I said, I'm already telling Lucy stories. Um, you know, just, you know, just, just a mom who is so loving that she's, um, she tossing, uh, how's it go? Rose petals in front of the kids as they walk by. <laughs> Can I do anything for you? Can I do anything for you? Mm-hmm. But anyway, with, um, um, Utah, um, actually there's uh park city. So beautiful. I mean, there's a family that you've met, uh, the Garcia family. They have a home out there. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. you know, all the boys hit the ball. Well, the younger one, Jose, especially hits the ball very cleanly, but, I always tell the brothers, "Hey, your parents are going to adopt me, and I'm moving to Park City. I, I'm going to—they're going to adopt me. I'm going to be the oldest, oldest child." But I have a connection to Utah. Uh, Tom Fai, who was a Braden coach, mm-hmm. um, he was—he was thinking about opening these retail stores, tennis retail stores, back when tennis was booming a little bit more in in the Salt Lake area. So uh, we had looked into going out to L.A. I say we. It was uh, Craig Tiley and Dave Anderson. And the three of us, uh, we, you know, we said, okay, we went out to LA and checked that out. Orange County, actually, Southern Cal. But so then, you know, five called me up and said, hey, come on up to Salt Lake. And I went up and said, this place is gorgeous. And so we, we talked about it in the theory of isolation to go to a place like Salt Lake and say, you know, it'd be a lot easier to make your mark here. Now I, we did that in Memphis at one point, um, and, and, and we hoped that, that some of the work that we did in Memphis uh, with Petrus Kukimore, now he's out there working. 
that that'll come to service. Even in, in, in Minneapolis, uh, Lifetime talking about one time, they have eight clubs. And to, just to take an area and say, okay, let's just prove that tennis can be taught really well and kids need to work on fundamentals in early child development classes. So this this ties in with your tennis game. It's, it's a Warren Pretoria story I tell all the time, and it's a, it's a great line. You know where I'm going with this. Uh, don't play great, play solid. And, you know, yeah. and you've won these senior titles. So I'm the one who went up to uh, Utah, and I did things for the uh, Utah Tennis Association. Um, you know, I can even, it wasn't there very long, 18 months. And, you know, Anderson ended up uh, at Club Corp uh, in Brookhaven. He's been there ever since. Tylee became the director of instruction before he was the coach at Illinois. Um, and then I went to uh, Seguzo Bassett. But so anyway, I was up there and you get a kick out of this is that so I'm with Phi, he ends up giving me the elbow. This woman asked me, Steve, are you LDS? And I said, uh, yeah, I think everybody is. LDS, learning disabled student. <laughs> Not Latter-day Saints, uh, the, the, the Mormon church. But uh, there was young Corbin Archer. You know, We worked with him, and I think he got to like the third round of Kalamazoo. He later went to Illinois, and that was the connection with Tylee. Uh, there was a kid, I think, Danny Summerhays, I think way back when, ISTP. He won a state title very quickly. There was a kid, uh, Brad Hasna, who was a very good athlete. Yeah. And uh, he was uh, unseated, worked with them. And, of course, we still have film of all this. You know, we have pre-post film of these kids. This goes back. So Hasna, unseated, he wins the Intermountain. And I can remember, you know, Robbie Seguza saying, this kid's, this kid's a good athlete. This kid can play. And showing Robbie a pre-post because he owned an academy with his wife. And so we got Brad Hasna. He's hitting with uh, Vince Badia. And Seguza's going, this guy's pretty good. I go, that was the kid we showed you on the video. This is where people have to change their strokes. So so many times in the trenches, um, you know, you just have to fight battles to convince people they have to work on technique. And, you know, the Archer and Hazard, they're really nice kids, Danny, Summerhays. But, you know, they really, uh, Archer and Hazard came down to Florida for a while. They were, they were used to club coaching. You know, they weren't used to, okay, this is a different level, boys. So we're, I don't think a lot of times juniors are uh, really prepared to be uh, college tennis players. But through all this, so I make a video of Corbin Archer. Make a video of everybody. So Peter Mallett, your doubles player, you'll have to tell us about Peter. So he calls me up and I'm like, uh-oh, I just have a message. Peter Mallett called. And I go, well, at that time I didn't know Peter. He said, well, he's a coach at Canyon Creek. He's the best player in Salt Lake. And so I said, all right, here it goes. Call him up. I get it all the time. And because it's, you know, it can be a little incriminating. You know, somebody's been giving somebody lessons for three years and you make a videotape for him. So Peter says, I watched that video you made. I go, uh-huh. He goes, yeah, I watched it twice. I go, uh-huh. And uh, I said, well, what do you think? He goes, can you make one for me? Yeah. And I said, sure. So the next thing you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a, you know, some work with Peter Mallett. And this is great for the listeners because he's a fantastic tennis player. He goes, I've never been able to hit a bloody forehand. So um, he'd already done so much in tennis, and you can talk about that. But he went on, and after that, he won all the 35s. But so this is for the listeners. This is uh, – Park City is a beautiful place. Warren's adopted hometown. But uh, Warren's won a lot of uh, balls with the USTA senior tournaments. And this is what Peter Mallett told you. Correct me if I'm wrong. Don't play great, play solid. 
And yeah. I mean, that's just fantastic. Cause kids, I mean, I always ask, you know, like I'll ask girls, are you playing Serena today? I mean, you know, just keep the ball in play. Vic Braden, let the other play player take gas. You know, Welby Van, yeah. Welby Van Horn, just let the other play below, below it. Why don't, why don't you let them miss once or twice instead of you missing all the time? Why, why don't you comment on Peter uh, and your, your senior tennis yeah. and, and uh, some thoughts on those, on along those lines? Yeah, I think that's that, uh, one of the things that, you know, so, so I, I won some, you know, um, goal balls and all of that. But I think that my real talent was that I picked my partners well. Uh, Peter Mallet being one of them, okay, he was he was am- amazing. Um, you know, he, he, was, he was definitely, I mean, he won so many tournaments. Like, yeah, he beats, you know, they, they'd have touring pros come, come you know, guys on, on tour come out here and, and play him. In exhibitions, and he he would be right there with him. Um, he, he played Wayne Ferreira once, and uh, when when Wayne was 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 doing well, yes, granted he was an off season, but he, you know he played him pretty tough. I think he lost, he lost the one set exhibition, he lost in a tiebreaker. So Peter was really really good, and he was a competitor like second to none, just really smooth. Um, and and he you know he played college tennis I think it was Oklahoma um, he was a t- top player there very good in Australia I, I believe was an alternate for uh, he played with Wally Masur there's friends with him you know alternate is a uh, Davis Cup I believe and but yeah he was really good on the local scene Peter was great to watch and he was and I think in the in the age divisions he won a ton of gold balls. And I think in the 35s, I think he won all four and never lost a set. So he's he's pretty much a you know legend, but also the most humble guy out there. So I I have known you know not not um, I can believe your story completely that he would say, hey, he wants one done it himself so he could get better. But yeah, he he played. I remember we were playing double. We were playing down at Canyon Racquet Club. I think we were, we were playing, and which is no no longer around. And um, he. I was going big on returns and all of that. And he just come over to me and goes, don't be great. Just be solid. Like go to the middle of the court and the return. It's like, don't, you don't have to do anything fancy. And I always remember that when I kept, when I was playing and yeah, but he, and he lived by it. He was but a great player. You know, a lot of our, a lot of our listeners are, are tennis parents taking their kid to practice or taking their kids to tournaments. That's got to be put on the refrigerator. You know, people just, yeah. they try to play shots they don't own. They play outside themselves, but that's, that's very well put. Um, I think something else that you can certainly learn from the Aussies is uh, that expression, no worries, mate. I like how Ash Barty says, uh, I'm just going to let the chips fall where they fall. But this is an experience for me with, um, so Peter Mallett's practicing with Greg Holmes. And Greg Holmes yeah. was top 20 in the world. Of course, they're playing high altitude. And uh, so they just play a set and Mallett wins. But uh, he said, no, I'm going to hold my serve. And he goes, the first sniff, the first chance I have to go forward. Um, yeah. And, you know, granted, uh, you know, perhaps a little, little uh, you know, the, I'm sure, you know, I don't know all the history, but I would think that uh, Greg Holmes probably knew him when he was much younger and had respect. And, you know, Pete Peters got in that situation coming off the lesson court, you know, how's it go? Uh um, everything to win, nothing to lose. And, mm. uh, but, but the idea of playing an approach volley, you know, so that's what I tell kids all the time, especially, you know, Carlos Goffey a week ago, two weeks ago. Um, 
you're up a green light point. They hit you that floating duck come in. And then you think of like a Jimmy Connors where he takes all those stutter steps and he waits the ball for the ball to come down where the racket faces vertical. Then you can just tag, you can drive the conventional approach volley. And you know, that's a shot that's just become a lost art. Um, But just to think like, here's a guy who's top 20 in the world and he's going, okay, I'm going to hit body serves, come in, make my first volley. I'm winning my serve. And I get the first chance to get in. Um, you know, that's what, that's why Sampras was so great. You know, he'd hold serve, you know, it's like God Gonzalez, he would hold serve and he, he could really take risks on the return because if you just know you're going to hold serve. Um, but, you know, to be a serve and volley, you have to have a serve and a volley. And if you spend your whole, you know, youth, you know, never serving volley, it's, it's very bleak that you're going to start doing it when you get to be 17, 18. But that's very good. How about for yourself as success in senior tennis? Um, you know, are you, you're one of those wiry guys who can just move, right? You don't even have to work at it and you can move or do you have to work at it? No, I think I, I, I mean, I was born vertically challenged. So, so it was definitely not going to be a, um, so I, 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 one thing growing up in, in high altitude in Johannesburg and especially living in Park City was your game, you know, revolves around, um, around getting to the net. So, so I think that that we learned really early on that you you've, you've got a certain volley, and you got to chip and charge, and you learn you learn to get to the net. Um, so definitely was I, I could never build my game around standing on the baseline and you know rallying and 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 definitely not going to go big on the serve because I'm you know five foot nine. Like there's only so much I can do, and as I told you earlier, as I have technical deficiency on my serve, I sort of palm up. So. So I had some limiting factors, but yeah, it was movement and getting to the net. That that um, that I think that um, if there was anything that my my coaches did well was um, volley technique. I thought you were going to say you do yoga every day. I mean, there's yoga, no, yoga, I, I, yoga, I, I yoga in your family, right? Don't you have a son who's a yoga teacher, right? Yeah, uh, my my youngest son is is a yoga instructor. But yeah, I I did find when I was when I was, even even now as, as you get older, you know, you get you get injured. You get injured more. I think tennis is, you know, being so one-sided dominant. I think you you lend yourself to injuries. And now I'm getting I had rotator cuff uh, problems and all that. But what I do is I do it's, um, Orange Theory. I don't know if you know. Yeah, yeah, if you yeah. Know, yeah. So, so I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty gone now. I think that that Orange Theory changed changed a lot about you know about why I can now you know still play and all that and um, only because it's functional movement you know it's, it's very it's not it's nothing crazy or anything like that you do it at your own your own pace you set your own you know limits and all of that and uh, and you're doing exercises that I ordinarily would not do if I just go to the gym because you know I go to the gym I work, work out I love working out I run and all that but it's not uh, I didn't get variety you find you go to the weight room and you do the same thing just week in and week out. You have your own, like, you, you know, you get um, your own system going and it's pretty, you know, there's no variety. So with Orange Theory, I'm, I really believe in that. I believe in, um, so I go to Orange Theory. I go to Orange Theory even now four, five times, sometimes every day. I would say um, that's, that's certainly more up uh, Brandon's alley. Um, I would say that Brandon... Anybody who spent a lot of time with me, I said, okay, you got to learn to replicate my skill set, then you have to have your own new skill set. 
And uh, that's what one thing that Brandon has here at the Performance Center, um, physical therapists, physical trainers, yoga teacher, masseuse. Um, but uh, yeah, so I thought you would say that uh, you're, you're doing some yoga with uh, every day. Uh, I, 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 need to do, I need to do more. Um, for sure, stretching and yoga and, and, and all that. But at the moment, I'm, I think at least I'm doing something that I would be, I would be if I went back 20, 20 years ago and told myself what I'd be doing now with Orange Theory, I think I'd be proud of myself. Mm-hmm. With uh, Let's wind this thing down. It's been great to listen to you. I mean, now you have so much to offer. It's great what you're doing for tennis. Um, kind of a break, breakthrough guy or definitely a breakthrough guy uh, taking tennis to a higher level. But uh, Brandon, you got a question to end it on? Yeah, more of a, a request. And, uh, you know, thanks thanks for your time tonight. I know you're a super busy guy. And uh, I'm going to add a little more work to your plate, if you don't mind. Okay. I, I've got I've got some research projects for you here. Of course, I'm just kind of joking. But I think that, you know, someone who appreciates stats like yourself would be really interesting to to try to measure uh, the ripple effect of the Williams sisters. And I think it'd be really interesting to measure the number of pro players who are, say, you know, you know, to some level of success in the professional game, say it's top 100 on either side, who have had a parent, uh, or to go as far as, say, a parent or a relative who was, uh, was a tennis coach themselves, uh, purely from the aspect of the financial side where, you know, if, they're your, if your tennis coach is your dad or your tennis coach is your mom, they're probably not charging you for their, their time on the tennis court, certainly like we talked about before, charging you, charging you to watch your matches. Um, yeah. as, as you said, the barrier for entry uh, in tennis being so high uh, with the cost of, of, of you know, good instruction. Um, but I, I've, I thought those are just a couple – small patterns that just over, over the, you know, approximately two hours of talking to you, um, as, as someone who appreciates statistics might, might, uh, yeah, might, might look into those for us. So, uh, in, 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 in about two weeks, I'll be expecting that email in my inbox. Is that all right? <laughs> sure. I'll talk everything else. <laughs> no, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I love statistics as well. And, uh, re- really, uh, really enjoyed it. And, um, Really happy to hear what you're doing uh, and have been doing in the game for a long time now, and and certainly uh, uh, something that the sport of tennis sorely needs. So uh, appreciate all your efforts and your time with us tonight. Yeah, I, I also appreciate everything that you guys are doing. You know, I do read, you know, I do follow up, you know, read all of the articles. And in fact, Steve, if you look at the, you know, we have that stat of the week that we put out every week. It's just one stat, which, you know, you can tell parents and, and all them to go to tennisanalytics.net, and then there's that stat of the week. And it's just one stat. And, you know, for the last month, I've been talking about different aspects of um, Orange Bowl. Um, and then we did Australian Open. We did all of that. And it's just one key stat that, that is of interest. It's, a, it's, about a, it's designed to be like a 30-second a read, Okay. But I did, I did plug, um, I did do, I did something like a net appearance in, in the last couple of uh, um, um, articles, and I did actually uh, embed your um, Facebook post with getting to the net on one of the articles. So there are a few there from you and Andy for self. So I am, um, I do follow what you guys are doing, and I respect it. And so 
sometimes uh, plagiarize a little bit. <laughs> Actually, uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. A lot of the people in our so-called network uh, sent me copies of that. Um, yeah, with uh, first of all, doubles clinics. So let's just touch upon that. I know Brandon. Uh, he's got you know two schools, two clubs, and municipalities. Many many. Uh, irons in the fire, but, uh, t- tell the listeners a little about the doubles clinics that you're doing. You know, then, uh, also too, like say Dave Nostrant, Mark Jakes, I mentioned, uh, Andy Fitzell, people that we've worked with that have worked with you. Uh, you mentioned the brain game with Craig O'Shaughnessy. How do people get in touch with you? I mean, that would be my second question. The first one is, uh, just tell the listeners a little about the doubles clinics you're doing. Cause you, it's not, you know, sure you're at the U S open, you're at Wimbledon, but, uh, you, you've got a project going where you're helping club players out. Yeah, I think that the next, we always look at collecting data, you know, we always look at the top down, the top tier, top 12 year old, top 14, top 16. But the, if you look at the demographic in tennis, I mean, there's probably more 3, 5, and 4 old players than there are, you know, the juniors. And, and there are a lot of, a lot more club players than there are, you know, juniors and, and, and pros. So, um, we did a couple of pilot projects. What were, you know, one was with the USTA. I did one internally, and then did did some stuff at Lifetime Tennis. Um, and we have done about eight of these clinics. So basically, players come in for um, for for three hours, and they play. They they play match play. So it's doubles, and they play time match play. And we have cameras on the court, and we film. We don't tell them anything. We just tell them, you know, ahead of time what we're going to be doing. We're filming, charting their matches. So they play for three hours. We get this footage. We then bring them all back in, and we, you know, they have a luncheon, um, and we do a presentation where we show them what they're going to get and what we're going to do for them. But we also then do a presentation, you know, based on what the findings from other players of their level, like serve placements, like where the errors are happening, where the rally links, all, all of that stuff, just just data, um, and. You know, there, there, there's no condescending. You never ever call a three-five player a recreational player, because the, there are some three-five and four-up players that are more serious about tennis than I've ever been. Um, so, you know, they are, um, they and they're also looking to improve. I mean, if you're a three-five player, even if you're a 16 handicap golfer, you know, it's a big deal if you can just knock two shots off of your your handicap. So I think it's the same thing. The moving from a three zero to three five to four zero and all that is is a big deal. So what we do is we we give them the same level of analytics, and we provide we give it back to them within a, within a few days of the camp, and then we do a follow up call, which is a Zoom call, and everyone gets on, and we just look at the group's findings for um, for the group, and tell them what it means and what they should pay attention to and what they share, and then they still take that and share that the video and all of that and the data with their coach. And at that point, obviously, the, the coach, you hand it off. We're not trying to get in between their, 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 their coach and that. Um, when we started running those, initially it was just me, you know, me going out and running them. And then I thought, you know, I cannot do, I cannot do them all the time. So we started having uh, sort of coaches. And it's not really, it's not a big, massive training you know, session because we're not talking about philosophies or anything like that. We're just showing coaches how to, you know, how to film a match and how to submit it for processing, and then a basic understanding of the of the stats. So we 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 show them how to do that, and then so the the idea now is to run more of those camps. 
um, and, you know, grow a network of coaches. In fact, Pietro Kukumar, you know, we have, I talked to him about doing it. I think he's interested, but you first got to let him settle into his new, new role. Um, and this would be something that a coach could run at their facility uh, to supplement what they're doing. Some offer something just different, and it's not like it has to be done every week. They run one a quarter. And then we've already seen every single one we've, we've, we've run, we've had, um, we, we, we filled them up. You do it with so, 16 players, correct? Yeah, so we run a four course. We get 16 players and they come in and they, they play doubles and then um, they they then switch. That's so time match play. That's almost like, you know, the winners move up and lose move down or whatever. We just do a round robin play. So we know, we know the level of, of of teams as a level of each player before they come out. So we, we, we want to get competitive match play. So we've run them with four courts and film and then players play. And, you know, it's turned, turned out, you know, to be a, a pretty good concept. We've also run the same concept in singles and we've run a couple with juniors, with juniors because a lot of juniors don't, are not getting any, any analytics. So what they do is they come to this, this workshop, if you will, and they um, come for three hours. They play singles, and their matches get charted. They, 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 we, we chart their matches and then give that back to the player and the parents and to their coach. And so we're offering, you know, offering a service. So that concept is more like you know you run it on a, court, a quarterly basis. It should be run more often, but you know anything is better than nothing. And we go. We want to go to clubs and you know run the, the that kind of workshop. Um, you know, once once a month. It's not like I I don't want to be the one that's there. Um, you want to um, enable the the coach, the, the 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 pro that's there to run this workshop. And we're just providing the service that we do. You know, doing the data stuff, doing the work, the work behind the scenes, and then give it back to the coach and. With the with some of the findings and also some of the benchmark information, because as we start collecting all this data from club players and that 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 database grows and grows and grows and the benchmarks become, you know, much more solid. So yeah, that's no, an exciting yeah, project a, that we. Were. It's a great concept. Uh, have to come down and pull it off at one of Brandon's clubs. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great to coordinate. Yeah, that. I think we should do one out out, out, out your way. Absolutely. Great. With, uh, uh, I expect you have a sign up in two weeks time, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Good, 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 good. Um, but how do people get in touch with you? So, so just go to our website. So it's, it's tennisanalytics.net. And my email is just, you know, warren at tennisanalytics.net. So everything's on the web. Yeah. But no, uh, a lot of takeaways from this, Warren, but appreciate your time. Uh, fantastic. Uh, I know that we have um, a lot of people that will uh, really benefit from uh, your time, what you've shared the last few hours. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Warren. <laughs> Is there any, any, anything else you wanted to add before we let you, let you go? Um, just that I'm hungry and I can smell some pizza downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, did you go snow skiing today? No, I didn't. I'm, I'm probably going to go at the end of the. I'll, I'll go. I'm going to take a day off on Friday. It's very difficult to do it during the during the week. There's a lot going on in that. So I think I may play hooky on Friday because the snow is really good. It's um, snow snowing out here now. 
and uh, we're going to get snow tonight and tomorrow. So last question. Last question I have is: How old are you now? I'm fifty-seven. Fifty-seven, because at one of the uh, facilities where Brandon and his team have a contract, uh, they have a senior event coming up in April. Um, John Clay, maybe a South African from Johannesburg, is going to skip that. How do you like? <laughs> do, do, do you like Clay? I'll probably skip that one. No, no, I, I, I really like Clay. I really like Clay, but um, I, uh, I get passed. Uh, I get passed on that one like, like crazy. Um, I, I, I remember playing. I, I played. Who did I play? Um, his, his nickname was the Magician. Um, um, Pablo um, Araya. I played him in the finals of the clay court um, in a, a senior tournament in uh, and it was in Naples on clay and um, he, he I played him in the, in, uh, in a, where I thought I was doing pretty well and all that and he made me look like a like a twelve year old <laughs> he passed me he he passed me with like with balls that were coming at five miles an hour it was just humiliating. Maybe one of the, uh, maybe one of the greatest feats of all time in tennis. The late Barry McKay, who very affable, everybody loved him as a commentator. He won the Italian Open. He used to just serve and go forward on everything. And uh, they said, "How did you do it?" He said, "Well, I served and I brought the baseline with me," <laughs> meaning, <laughs> meaning that he could he couldn't be passed. But uh, no, I think that's uh, a great challenge for anyone is to be able to play on all the different surfaces. But Warren, yeah. thank you, thank you, thank you. Enjoy that pizza. Hey, guys, thank Thanks, you. Yeah. Appreciate the, the opportunity. Hey, See actually, one, one thing, Warren, is uh, you did help out one of our associates, uh, Steve Campbell, through one of your contacts. Uh, I know you called Andy Fitzell. I talked to you. Um, but you know, through uh, your connection, uh, he secured a job at a really nice resort in Virginia. But uh, So anyway, oh, a big, yeah. big thanks for that. Um, it's just amazing. Uh, all the connections. But anyway, yeah, you're welcome. Pizza, pizza, pizza. Thanks again. Okay. See you guys. All right. Good night. Bye. Flanagan, Flanagan, Flanagan. Uh, another great session. Excellent session. Yeah. I can smell some pizza downstairs at our performance center here. Yeah. Um, give me one takeaway. I'll give you one. I'll give you one takeaway. Uh, I think it's another. Co, uh, another, uh, obviously he's, uh, stepped away from so much of the, say the on-court club, you know, pro coaching and, you know, being a director of tennis, et cetera, et cetera. He's, and we've talked to college coaches. We've talked to someone like Cole Reeves, uh, Carlos Goffey, um, different, uh, different people who are, have been very influential in the sport of tennis. And Warren is, is certainly one of those guys, but, uh, a pattern that I see and another another person who's played multiple sports had to really work for their time on the court. Um, Warren talked about hitting the backboard, but uh, but again, um, that pattern of of uh, being a multi sport athlete and uh, not having everything given to them or handed to them, uh, not being entitled, and look at what look at what they're doing. You know, they're making great impacts in the sport that we all love. So uh, that's my takeaway, Steve. Takeaway for me is I've known Warren a long, long time, and um, but it's always been in an academic setting, in a coach's workshop, conference, um, having a beer. But I'm going to ask Andy Fitzell about a serve. I don't think it's as bad as he's saying, but then I can say, Andy, uh, 
definitely it's regress palm up. It's not a beginner's palm up. And how does he compensate? And did he make any changes? And, you know, tell me about Warren Bertorius's serve. I think very humble. I don't think it's as bad as he says it is because you don't have gold balls if you have that bad a serve. Mm -hmm. But um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Podcast 83 in the books. I know some of you, thank you. You've listened to all 83. Uh, We will get around after we've had 100 of these. um, We'll get down to the show notes and taking some notes. But one thing that uh, I know he does follow, he mentioned uh, what we put out on Facebook. Um, We're telling juniors all the time, you know, we don't, well, you had spent all this time in social media, but uh, we have Great Base uh, Instagram, Great Base Facebook. Um, we have courses. We have five free courses online. And um, all we're doing is sharing information that we've gathered. And uh, we over now uh, close to 50 years have put a lot of homework together. But, you know, Warren is certainly not one of our pillars, you know, because we just go with the people that we were working with in the 80s. But, uh, no, it's great to, you know, someone like Warren, uh, you know, that's what needs to happen is he's you know, improved upon what Bill Jacobson was doing and mm-hmm. people need to be in tune with that and they need to go to tennis analytics and they need to study that. I mean, you're talking really about the coaches. I know my son Connor, for example, I said, hey, you know, you should be just reading those articles on uh, – the brain game, you know, he, he had a bad injury where he went, you know, his shoulder first into the net post, not as bad as like a James Blake and broke, mm. I think he broke his neck. But I said to Connor, I said, why don't you just come back and be a bluff and just tell everybody, ah, you know, I had such a bad injury. It was a bad, bad bruise. I said, why don't you just come back and tell everybody that uh, you're just going to specialize in doubles, but still play singles and just go to the net, just go in. Um, I do think, you know, I, I mean, with uh, college tennis, uh, and, Ty Tucker helped him out so much, but uh, yeah, I think he played better tactically before he went to college because it was go forward, go forward, play an all-court game, not forehand, forehand, forehand. Um, but no, I think just so many things. Another takeaway, obviously, would be um, you know go to the net. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that uh, people treat the net like it's a rattlesnake that's going to bite them. Mm. You know, if you want to travel around the world being a tennis player, but they won't go thirty-nine feet forward. That's a good line. Yeah, I'm going to go write that on one of your bathroom walls. You have four <laughs> bathrooms here, and I should have the right to write it on one of the bathroom walls. That's what you get for being almost 70. Anyway, adios, amigos. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.